Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us once again. This is episode 139. We're recording this on Sunday, August 15th, 2021, at 3 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. And joining me again, we've got the whole Almost Sideways team. Todd Plucknett, Zach Saltz, Adam Daly. How's it going, everybody? Let's go. Let's get it. Let's do this. I like that. uh, Can we can we call you Adam Sideways? Is it at Adam Sideways? Because that's your name on the screen. It it is his name on the screen. That's his Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Yeah, follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Twenty subscribers away from one thousand. There we go. Wow. What? I have like seventy-five. So yeah, come find me on Twitter. I have like hundred and eighty, and like hundred and seventy of them are Russian bots. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's impressive yeah i got i got a, a bot a couple days ago you might want to bleep this out it's uh, the name is anita dick it's a Very it's nice. a yeah it's yeah it's nice. don't click on the don't click on that so sounds like yeah something that bart simpson would call mose about is, is there yeah, an anita dick here yeah <laughs> nice <laughs> all right well right make on. sure make sure that you are subscribing rating reviewing all over the internet, wherever you can find the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify. You can find all the details at almostsideways.com uh, for everything there. Also, make sure you check out the YouTube page and subscribe there. Hit the the bell, right? The bell icon and the thumbs up. Yeah, I got it. Okay. The guy needs to put the the YouTube button on that little that slide you throw up there. Right? Who, the, yeah, we need yeah. to get onto who, our who, who our who uh, makes those things anyway. Our, our graphic guy. We need to our graphic he to guy. Get, he needs to get his shit together. There we go. There we yes yes very much so. All right. What are we drinking today, Zach? What do you got? Uh, I have vodka. No, it's actually aqua agua fria. I was gonna be impressed. All <laughs> <laughs> vodka. New, Hell new, yeah. new Starbucks vodka. Yes, a new flavor. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? Uh, I made a black and tan. Unfortunately, it's somewhat homogenized already. It worked better yesterday. I used the uh, the blonde Guinness and the dark Ooh. Guinness as the top. But uh, I don't know. You can see it a little bit. Just the light's a little bad. But, I mean, it's awesome. It just uh, doesn't look as cool as it did about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> nice, nice. Adam? All right. Well, I got this bottle of Patron. No, um, no, I got. Uh, I just got a margarita. Just nice, simple, nice margarita. Just nice, relaxing, a nice seas glass. <laughs> and a seven seas glass. Yeah, that's yeah. how we do it here. It was, it was. Yeah, let's do it. Very nice. All right. I went to the brewery. Went over to Ridgewalker. Shout out to Ridgewalker Brewery. And this is this is their their Tree Wise Imperial Ooh. IPA. So that looks beautiful. It, it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Nice. Cheers, okay. by the way. Cheers. Yes, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into this. Let's not waste any time. What have we been watching this week? We're going to go to Zach first. Zach, what, what is this week's uh, this week's Criterion Watch? 
All right, so I was partially inspired by Todd's top 100 list to look at a movie that uh, he had on his list uh, and uh, I know Tarantino loves. It is from 1962, Les Doulos, directed by uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville, who is uh, regarded as one of the um, you know cooler underground French directors of the 1960s. He's sort of a new wave, sort of blunt, uh, uh, you know, blended in with the new wave, but he has sort of his own unique style, his own takes on film noir. Um, I gotta be honest, I'm not really a big film noir guy. Uh, I sort of think that the stylistic excess of film noir sort of overcompensates for sometimes unoriginal stories. So uh, I have to sort of lay that out there. I will say though, I like Melville's films. I'm not as huge a fan as other people. Uh, and actually what's kind of interesting is that Criterion put out a bunch of his movies about 10 years ago. Uh, it was part of a restoration effort in conjunction with Rialto Pictures and Studio Canal. And then sadly, the copyright like lapsed only a couple years later so they went out of print immediately so Lady Los is actually one of the harder criterions to find um, and uh, it's a really interesting movie it, it stars uh, everybody's favorite French uh, star of the 1960s Jean-Paul Jean Belmondo he was the main guy in Breathless and in this movie he plays a character named Cillian um, although he's not introduced in the movie for about the first 20 minutes uh, he is a uh, gangster uh, and he uh, has some suspicious ties to the police. We kind of wonder as we first meet him if he's an informant for the police because he seems to have this kind of, uh, he's kind of working both the mob and the police. He kind of meets with them separately uh, over the course of the movie. We're also introduced to a character named uh, Maurice, uh, played by Serge Reggiani, who at the beginning of the movie assassinates um, a guy who has uh, absconded with a bunch of gold. And we're not really sure why he kills him uh, until about 60 minutes into the movie. And that kind of leads me to my biggest criticism of the movie is that the plot is fairly indecipherable, uh, as with a lot of film noir movies. Uh, you know, anybody that try to watch, uh, you know, uh, a Howard Hawks movie or something like that, you just, you know, it, you got to kind of leave the intellectual, rational part of your movie viewing brain on hold. Um, this movie has a lot of characters, a lot of dialogue. You can see why Tarantino likes it. There's way more dialogue and talking than there is actually acting. In fact, this movie does recall Reservoir. It's like a mixture of Reservoir Dogs and, and Jackie Brown in the sense that you have, like I said, this Belmondo character who's kind of working the police and the mob, kind of like Jackie Brown. But you have this um, basically this robbery gone wrong and all these tough guys kind of accusing each other, dishonesty among thieves sort of thing that we also see in Reservoir Dogs and pretty much every other film noir movie. Watching this movie was an interesting experience. Uh, again, the first hour of it, I was just overwhelmed uh, and I felt lost at sea in uh, a series of scenes with many characters talking about events and people that appear off screen and are never really fully realized. But then you kind of just, you got to kind of realize at a certain point, okay, well, Balmondo's important. Uh, the other guy's important, Reggiani, uh, they're stolen jewels. Okay, well, let's just kind of let it go. Put, put the rational part of your brain kind of in, in, in the back and enjoy the ride. And I will say it is a pretty enjoyable movie. There's some um, pretty interesting scenes, some confrontations uh, that are end up in some, go, go in some pretty surprising directions. There's some great one-on-one -on -one scenes. There's a great one-on-one -on -one, uh, scene between uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Michael Piccoli. Uh, and he's sort of like stood up. 
Uh, this is a three-star movie. I have no idea why it's on Todd's top 100. I know Tarantino loves it. I know a lot of people love Melville. I've actually, I like um, Army of Shadows and uh, uh, Circle Rouge much more than this movie, which again, indecipherable, confusing, bit sexist, quite honestly, at times, and uh, kind of rambling, but did have its moments, had some charm. Todd, why is this movie in your top 100? Well, I mean, I don't know. I've seen it a couple of times. I, I've, I guess I'm more taken by the style of those movies than you are. Like I like it just mm -hmm. there's like images, like the shadows, the staging, everything about the movie just seems like ingrained in my head. And plus, I mean, I think it was Scorsese that originally was the reason why I watched it because I think it's one of his all-time favorite movies. And he actually, I think, based like the Irishman's tone on on the on Le Dallas. But I don't know. I mean. I, I, I guess I can see what you're saying well, if you're if you can't if you're a little lost, but I mean that that could just take another time watching it. I mean I I love the movie honestly like I I it, it has I mean it's been a couple of years I guess since I've seen it but I don't know. yeah it's a good movie and I, I give it three stars to be clear it was an enjoyable movie I liked it more in the second half but this is the I guess it's just a fun, bigger problem of film noir which is that these plots are indecipherable. So it becomes much more about that. Like what you said, Todd, the staging and the scenery and the, you know, the, the Chioscuro lighting and things like that and the costumes, which are cool. Uh, but in yeah, the it's end, like, it's like watching like a Wong Kar Wai movie or something like that. I mean, I, I, mm -hmm. I get, I, I love, I love the, the, the visual of, of those movies more than I actually do necessarily the, the plot. But. Yeah, I mean, the visuals of this movie were okay. I wasn't blown away by anything. It wasn't anything I hadn't seen before. A lot of it is very talky. A lot of it takes place in, like, back rooms and, you know, apartments. It's not, like, radical stuff. So, I don't know. I I, I, I can see why Tarantino was influenced by, by Melville, and in particular this movie, and, and Scorsese. But maybe I just need to watch it three or four more times. Which I don't have time for. But, hey, I, I did like it. And the DVD actually has a really cool feature of Bertrand Tavernier, the great late uh, French director. The Martin Scorsese of France in many ways. And he, he was an assistant director on the movie. And he has some great stories about uh, Jean-Pierre Melville um, and how he was actually fired by Melville on the set. But they still had a, a, a good friendship. So uh, some, good, some good extras on this, too. It needs nice. a Blu-ray, though. All right. Very nice. Very nice. Or a and, 4K. Well, speaking, they just announced that. Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Speaking of needing a Blu-ray, they, they just announced that they're going to release their, their first 4K Criterion is. And, Citizen uh, Kane. Well, know, Citizen Kane will be the first. First 4K Citizen Kane, yeah. Yeah, and the, but there's like a list of like 10 of them that they're going to release. Mm, the Red yeah. Shoes, the Piano, Home Drive. Yeah. yeah. Which is nice. Got to pick up some of those. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Let's see here. Let's go to Adam next. What'd you watch this well, week? All right, so I watched a film that was actually streaming on Amazon. Actually, I believe Zach watched it last week, too, or a couple weeks ago. Uh, Val. Uh, 2021's uh, Val. Leo Scott and uh, Ting Poo uh, uh, directed this movie. Uh, so, but anyway, I, Val Kilmer is one of the, an actor that I've always kind of admired. I've liked a lot of his movies. We've seen some of the movies pop up on his top 100, like uh, Terry had Top Gun up there as well. But this is kind of a really quaint uh, personal story. I didn't really know that he was going, he had a throat cancer there, so it was really hard to talk. I was really su surprised by that. I know that uh, Zach mentioned that when we were all getting together uh, that one time. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but watching his story being told through um, 
his words, but Jack Kilmer, his son, actually narrates the movie. Uh, seeing his story told out through all this old footage that he used to film, because he's one of the only guys that had a video camera back then. So he documented a lot of his life, but not just home movies, but actually on set. So you get to see his, his uh, Iceman crew on Top Gun out there, too, and see some other uh, images from all their movie sets, too. Especially uh, Dr. Moreau was actually a really cool kind of see some background footage uh, and stuff with Brando um, there. But seeing his progression and really a, a story about acting and kind of the heartbreaking, not really heartbreaking story, but seeing his progression where he was kind of got this bad rap of being kind of a difficult actor. And even people were saying, no, he's not really difficult. It's, he just really cares about it. But seeing his whole story play out was really fascinating to watch. I couldn't, it was like, I couldn't take a look away because it was just so uh inspiring in a way too because seeing his whole his whole story where he actually goes to com comic cons and all these other different things to meet his fans because that's really all he can really do and he said i don't really want to talk bad about people who go out and go to just promote their old works but that's kind of what i have to do to get close to the people because i can't really do what i i'm passionate about but seeing his love for acting and this also his uh his roles are really cool and i really liked the, some of the callbacks where he we he talks about batman forever uh he did and why he turned down going to the uh the next batman film after batman forever uh, because he couldn't hear and he was kind of felt uh you know I don't know. He he felt um, that he wasn't really part of the crew because of he couldn't hear anything and he couldn't really move in the, the suit and everybody else big bigger flamboyant performances. And then he actually went to do a role that he was actually really excited for called The Saint, which came out in uh, 1997. So I'm really excited to go back and rewatch that movie for next year because I really enjoy had some nostalgic uh, for that growing up. But uh, Kilmer, this story was uh, really uh, awesome to watch and i definitely encourage everybody who kind of likes documentaries and have amazon prime to and, and a big fan of val kilmer to, to take a look at it. this is an easy three-star film that i thoroughly uh, enjoyed and i probably watch this again because uh it's, it's val kilmer back on our, our screens again so it's pretty cool there yeah i liked it too i think it's a very conventional documentary i don't think you're, it's necessarily mind-blowing yeah. i kind of no, yeah. wish it could have had more of a counterpoint a little bit because mm -hmm. so much of this movie is just val kilmer's perspective yeah. and you know i i would have liked to hear maybe people who don't always agree with what he has to say or his perspective on things but it is really interesting i think the last act of the documentary where he talks about his efforts in theater um after yeah, he came into his film career was was really interesting I, I wasn't really aware of that but kind of shows i think how ambitious and sort of unrelenting he was as a as a actor yeah, I didn't know about the Mark Twain thing. I actually kind of looked up to see, like, is this, did this get a video release or can I stream this somewhere? I couldn't find it quite yet, but I'm definitely interested in seeing the Mark Twain play because they show some of the highlights in this documentary and it looks hilarious. Like, that's pretty dang awesome. So really cool to see that he, you know, was such a big uh, a theater advocate too. So that's pretty cool. I think Val Kilmer and Johnny Depp were kind of in a similar category in that they they kind of emerged as these potential heartthrob Hollywood superstars and both decided to take a very different road and be more of the Artur. And uh, and that that puts it put Val Kilmer in such a different different company and different category from so many other actors in the 90s. Yeah, I, I haven't seen Val yet, but it's one I want to go back and watch because, yeah, I was a big fan of his, too. Yeah. All right, Todd. What? What? Who are um, we? Who are we looking at today? Uh, so we're going with 
the man Eric Roberts. Yeah, <laughs> there, there we go. go. Yeah, get it. And for some reason, I chose uh, the 2000 John Waters movie Cecil B. Demented, which is uh, crazy and nothing like you would really expect from John Waters, the like rebel filmmaker behind Pink Flamingos. But it's a it, it it's a, Cecil B. Demented is actually the name of a filmmaker in the movie played by Stephen Dorff, who's like upset with Hollywood, <laughs> so he decides he's going to get his deranged group of his cast and crew and kidnap this like diva superstar actress lady honey whitlock played by melanie griffith and force her to star in the movie which is going to be like a real live shooting of like and like of murdering people and like holding up buildings and punishing everybody who has anything to do with like commercial cinema and it it's like loosely based on the patty hearst case which i i thought was interesting i didn't see that right away but um it starts out with kind of a lighter tone, like a Christopher Guest movie. But then once it they actually kidnap her, it becomes like God Bless America. It's like full on Bobcat Goldquit like kind of thing, but with like the visual flair of like a bad Joel Schumacher movie. Uh, <laughs> like the effects and stuff are, are ridiculous, but I mean, and low budget, but they kind of look decent. I mean, similar to a Schumacher movie in that way. But the cast is kind of loaded. It's got like early Michael Shannon and Maggie Gyllenhaal uh adrian Gurnier before he was on entourage ricky lake kevin nealon's like has a bit part playing himself starring in forrest gump 2 and uh roseanne bars in there and alicia witt but then there's eric roberts who literally has one line like he is he is he's he plays the ex-husband of honey and he's on tv and like talking about her and he has one line and i was like okay was that worth watching this whole movie for i don't know (laughs) Maybe the, uh, then I was thinking uh, maybe it'd be hard to continue an Eric Roberts thing because I really would be doing that every time for in like the last <laughs> like thirty years. But um, it's, it's this one of like the least recognized and least like seen John Waters movies. It only had like nominations for like worst actress for like, Melanie Griffith, and yeah, she's bad, but kind of so is everybody else. I don't know why this movie didn't get like a festival run or something because that's usually how Waters movies are 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 like distributed and they don't really get theatrical releases anyway. I. The, the, some of the ideas are admirable and ahead of its time, but I don't know if it's actually all that good. It, it's just it's just weird that a movie in the middle of his career could just be this like kind of blah and ignored. But I mean, I guess that's sort of I, maybe he wanted it that way. It's John Waters. He he he's all about like pushing boundaries and blurring lines and being like different than everybody else. And so this movie is just sort of different. I can't see I've seen anything like it. It's not always for the better though, but I I still kind of just like. I'm going to remember the movie. It's a two and a half star movie. Very nice. nice. Very nice. Has anybody Exciting. seen that one? No. 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 Okay. Heard of it? No. 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 I've been assigned a John Waters movie from Zach. I thought there was a chance that he had seen it. <laughs> I do. Well, John Waters, I mean, John Waters is like what? The you know, Edwin Encarnacion of film directors. He's either hitting 50 homers or he's batting like 110. So maybe that's the not... Parrot. Give, give me a better baseball player, Terry. But like either he's swinging for the fences or he's striking out. And yeah, how Mike about, the, how about the, the recently retired Chris Davis? Let's yeah, that's better. There we go. R.I.P. He's the Chris Davis of, of directors. <laughs> he's, and, yeah. and Cecil B. Demented by all, by all accounts was him striking out. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. and, and this is why I'm not going to continue with Eric Roberts. It'd be impossible. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen probably 10 movies now where he's literally in one scene. <laughs> so Nice. It's like <laughs> and he's got, like, Eric Roberts' cameo sections, yeah. 
All right, final one, on to me. And I am going back 10 years for my Oscar watch to the last foreign film nominee that none of us have seen. And that's no more because I've seen it now. And it is a best foreign film nominee out of Israel. And this is called Footnote. Footnote. Uh, it is written and directed by Joseph Cedar. And it stars Shlomo Baraba and Lior Ashkenazi. And this has got to be one of the quirkiest movies I've ever seen. Um, that's going into like super, super like finite, like very small group of like people it's targeting here. So um, these two characters play a father and son who are uh, professors of Talmud studies, Talmudic studies in Israel. And, um, and the father is kind of quirky. It's, it's kind of offhand reference that he might, he might be um, slightly autistic. And he's been, he's been a, a researcher for a long, long time. But like his career work was spoiled. He was working like for 20 years on this one research project that someone else like magically found a manuscript that made his entire life's work obsolete. And so right now, all the only thing that he has to say for like his notoriety is he was given a footnote in one famous uh, researcher's uh, book. And that, hmm. that's all he's got. And so uh, his son has far surpassed him in notoriety and popularity, but he kind of is a little jealous of him. They've kind of become rivals in some way, even though the son's career is completely inspired by his father. And so we get to what, what's happening in this movie. And, and there's a, a big prize. It's called the Israel prize. And, uh, and the father, his name is Eliezer. The father's Eliezer. The son is Uriel. Uh, Eliezer is chosen for the Israel prize. It's like career achievement award in Talmudic studies. And hmm. we find out, and he's, it's like the happiest day of his life. He's so excited. And then we find out that it was actually supposed to go to his son, but oh. they accidentally <laughs> called the wrong person. And, uh, and so now it, it's, it's this kind of back and forth. What does the son do? Does the son try and try and support his father and, or does he crush his father so he can get the notoriety? Um, it is, it's really quirky. It's kind of funny at times. Um, it, it's, it plays on some really odd offbeats. Um, my wife loved the movie because she's a librarian and <laughs> so many scenes in this take place in a library where he's just sitting there with books. Um, but it's a little too quirky. It's a little too odd of a premise um, and, and to really be great. And the ending, the payoff, like doesn't exist. Like it's all building towards something. And then it like cuts to black, right? Is that something is about to happen. Oh, and great. so I'm, I'm giving it two and a half stars. I mean, it was, it was an entertaining watch. It was, it was different, but it didn't pay off. And it was just a little too weird, a little too quirky, a little too odd of a topic. I have no <laughs> idea how this got nominated for, for best foreign film, an Israeli movie about two professors of Talmudic studies that are, that are duking it out intellectually. It, it's, it, it was an interesting one. It was an interesting one for sure. 
Well, so. it's, an Amer- it's an American-born director, it looks like. Yeah, and, and he hasn't That's really done weird. anything uh, after that. He made another movie five years later, and he made a an HBO miniseries in 2019, and that's all he's done since his Oscar nomination, which is, which is different, which is different yeah. for sure. So, uh, so, yeah, two and a half stars for, uh, for Footnote. Yeah, Have that movie's seen? been on no. my, like, to, to watch list for literally ten years, and I... <laughs> I just have always put it off, and maybe there was a reason why. I, I always was like, ah, I probably should watch this because it was nominated, but I don't know. I just never pulled the trigger. Nice. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's worth a watch simply because it's it was a it was a nominee, but and to see how quirky the nominees can be. But uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fit, and especially looking at what else was nominated. I mean, it went up against the separation, and Bullhead are the only other two I've seen so far, and those are two very very intense movies. And then you have this, which doesn't fit at all. And I still have to watch In Darkness and Monsieur Lazar, and those are coming up later this year. But uh, yeah, that's footnote. So when our our next power ranking is going to be best movies about Talmudic studies, <laughs> well, well, is this better than? I mean, I'm thinking Yentl might might surpass this one, but I feel like this this is a solid entry on that list. It it, it might it might be it might be it might be it, it, the movie starts off and says this is. This is Eliezer's the worst day of Eliezer's life, and it was his son winning an award. <laughs> and then the best day of Eliezer's life is was the day he found out he was winning an award. Yeah, it was kind of it was just different. It was different for sure. Nice, a little quirky, a little awkward. All right, so let's move on from that. We're moving now into and go a little out of order here because we need to pay off what we've been building on for the last few weeks. Still revealing our top 100s of all time. And today we are looking at our numbers 40 to 31. Uh, so we're each going to uh, introduce uh, numbers 40 through 31 on our list as we continue to build towards each of our number ones of all time and then revealing the top 25 movies, uh, according to Almost Sideways, of all time. So let's get into this and let's just kind of rattle through, rattle through these uh, like we've been doing uh, Zach, I, I believe you said you like to set the tone, and you've been doing that this whole time for us. So you get to go first here. Give us your your forty to thirty one. Nice. All right. Well, so it's kind of interesting. Like last week, you guys were uh, busting me for my pick on Castaway in my top fifty, and you were kind of right. I feel like I did <laughs> put that movie a little too high. It's probably more in the seventies or eighties, quite honestly. It's I feel not like that we is... were busting you for it. It's no, you made valid it points. It, it didn't fit. Be that high. It didn't fit with the I other just, movies. It I just, just want to be yeah. on a desert on desert island. It's just a fantasy. It's, it's, it's never too all. late to audible at the last second. Never too late. Well, my point is, I feel like this stretch here is really the last stretch where you guys can can bust me and call me out for stuff, and I'll maybe give it some like second thought. Like I think top thirty is pretty set in stone, but these ones are maybe still a little bit uh, malleable. So anyway. Uh, number 40 on my list is my favorite Paul Newman movie, The Verdict, uh, Sidney Lumet, 1982. Uh, great, one of the great courtroom dramas, one of the great sort of underdog comeback stories. And the way that he just sips down that egg and that beer is just uh, magnificent. That we, When we do a deep dive of that movie, that's what we should have all be drinking next year when we do a 40-year anniversary. Number 39 is The Man in the Moon, recently assigned to Terry. This used yeah. to be in my top five of all time. Not quite there anymore, but I still love it. 
Uh, Reese Witherspoon's first movie, a breakout role, Robert Mulligan's, I think it's his best movie. Most people will say To Kill a Mockingbird. It has a sort of similar tone. Uh, first Love, The South, Late 50s, Elvis, uh, some great, uh, wonderful performances in this movie. Sam Waterston, Tess Harper, uh, amazing coming of age story. Uh, number 38 is Days of Heaven. Terrence Malick making another appearance on my list. I think this is the highest Terrence Malick movie I have. Uh, I love it. It's a movie that I think is aged really well. It's kind of what Malick does best. It's the dreamy narration, but the golden hour uh, cinematography, the lush, beautiful landscapes of the of the Midwest. Uh, it's a phenomenal movie. Linda Mance recently passed away. Uh, one of the great narrators in the one of the great narrations in the history of movies, and uh, just just wonderful all around. So, so Terrence Malick yeah. at what he does best, which means I would hate it. Uh, I actually think you'd like this one. The, the story actually is a little bit more linear than The Tree of Life, and there's no CGI dinosaurs. Oh, okay. Yeah, Terry, okay. Terry's favorite Malick movie has got to be Badlands, if you want. Well, it. Badlands was in my top 100, and that is, yeah. that's his most straightforward movie. That's an excellent movie. It makes a great double feature with Days of Heaven. Sadly, this went, by the way, just out of print um, by Criterion, so uh, get it while you can. Number 37 is Blue Valentine, a movie that was on my top uh, 10 list of the 2010s. A movie that really grew on me. I think when I first saw it, I had it maybe like number five of 2010. But in the years since, uh, maybe, you know, after being married for uh, 10 years, uh, I realized this is a very perceptive um, and smart movie about marriage uh, that, that kind of crumbles. It does this great thing where it does flashbacks. You see the uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, uh, who, uh, gosh, Michelle Williams uh, at the beginning of the relationship, and then you see them at the end. The contrast that Derek Sear in France has is really kind of unique, and uh, some some really wonderful moments in this movie. There's a great scene where Ryan Gosling sets up this old guy's room at a senior living center that I think is one of the best scenes in any movie. It, it, it has nothing really to do with the movie, but it's a great little scene, and Ryan Gosling amazing in this movie. Uh, 36, Au Revoir Les Enfants, a movie I know Todd is a fan of, uh, set in World War II, France, uh, two uh, schoolboys um, at a Catholic school, one of whom is Jewish and being hidden from the uh, Nazis. Uh, really great story, a very moving portrait uh, that's based uh, autobiographically on events in Louis Mal's life. Uh, very uh, tragic, uh, might appear maybe on our power rankings later in this episode, but uh, Louis Mal's best movie, one of the best uh, French movies of the 80s, probably the best, I mean, if it's my 36th film, it's probably the best French movie of the 80s, but uh, really, really nice movie. Number 35, another movie from the 80s, Terms of Endearment. I think I'm a bigger fan of this movie than anyone else in this podcast. I grew up watching it. I think it's a movie that has aged actually really well. Two of the great performances in American cinema, uh, Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger, some great off-camera uh, tempestuous tension between them on set, but James L. Brooks in his directorial debut did a magnificent job, Jack Nicholson. Um, you know, you're going to have to to kill the bug that you have up your ass. Uh, how can you forget the scene where they're driving on the beach? I love this movie. It's perfect. Number 34, another Best Picture winner, Titanic. Ah. I don't know if that's been mentioned. I think it, I've seen it on a couple other lists, but uh, what can you say about it? It's magnificent. Um, James Cameron is the king of the world. Number 33, Elephant, the best film by Gus Van Sant. And apparently Emil Hirsch could have been in this movie, but I'm kind of <laughs> glad he wasn't. Number 32, 
Manon of the Spring. Now, this is a dual pack because technically Manon of the Spring is the sequel to Jean de Florette. And by Todd's kind of um, arbitrary rules, I can't give any ties. I think Manon of the Spring is a superior movie to Jean de Florette. But of course, you need to watch Jean de Florette to understand what happens in Manon of the Spring. Um, and it stars pretty much the most beautiful woman who's ever been in the history of movies, Emmanuel Bayard, as uh, Manon. Um, and when it says the spring, it's not referring to the season. It's about a water well. And, you know, just watch the movie. I actually, if, if you if you were a big fan of, um, what was the, oh gosh, I, I'm totally blank. What, 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 was, what was the Korean movie that came out, uh, Yoon Jin Yoon, one supporting actress for? I'm blanking on the title. Minari. So oh, Minari. Minari. There's actually some unusual parallels between Minari and John de Florette and Man in the Spring. I encourage everybody to watch those. And number 31, I think it's been mentioned before, Hoop Dreams, one of the great documentaries, Steve James, uh, amazing work. So there you go. All right, recap us 40 to 31 before we uh, react to you. Okay, number 40 was uh, The Verdict. Number 39 was The Man in the Moon. Number 38 was Days of Heaven. Number 37 was Blue Valentine. Number 36 was Au Revoir Les Enfants. Number 35 was Terms of Endearment. Number 34 is Titanic. Number 33 is Elephant. Number 32 is Manon of the Spring. And number 31 is Hoop Dreams. Major oversight not having major oversight not having Jack Nicholson on our the odd betting odds. Yeah, Todd, Todd, are you still looking are you still working on the prop bets? Are you still keeping track of this? I I will. I wasn't Jack on there, no. He wasn't. I don't know. Oh wow. yeah, he was not. Wow. Yeah, that was the opportunity there. But great call for Blue Valentine. You might see that later on up, a little further up my list. Love that movie. That was a very yeah. Zach group of movies. I was, was just gonna say that this is like the right. the uh, you you could have said what you said about terms of endearment. You could have said about almost every movie on this list. I'm a bigger <laughs> fan of this movie than anybody else on this podcast. I mean, the verdict, Man in the Moon, Days yeah, I don't of think, Heaven, I don't think any... is a font. Terms of endearment, Elephant. I mean, Man of the Spring. These are these are yeah, Zach. I'm not sure those Zach are... specialties. Yeah, those yeah. Are, I don't know. I'm sure those are actually the favorite movies of that those directors <laughs> for me. But I mean. <laughs> They're all good movies. And if we had to pick, like, the only movie that sticks out, like, compared to every, all those other ones, What's like the Titanic. Titanic, Titanic would Titanic? be the castaway. What? But it's still a great movie. But I don't think anybody oh, else, I, I didn't mention it. Did anybody else mention that? I don't know yet. Not yet. Not yet. Um, okay. Gotcha. Hasn't been Merlot. No, yeah. Well, we're not Merloting anymore. But, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I see what what Adam's saying and in, in just simply that it doesn't, it doesn't fit because it, it, in just like the theme of the rest of the movies, that's kind of what we meant with cast. It's away. not, it's not highbrow enough. I think is what you're saying. It's kind not. Of, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Man, Although, Man in the moon is not highbrow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and really you could make the case terms of endearment isn't either. Yeah. I just, you know, listen, at this point in my life, I'm not going to put Les Doulos on my list because uh, it was <laughs> so influential on film noir. I'm going to put movies that I unabashedly love and can just put on any time of any day. So, I mean, you know, Days of Heaven, for example, is a great artistic masterpiece, but it's also a great freaking movie to watch. Like, it's a really enjoyable movie with a great story. I'm and just put that on every day. I, w I would watch that movie every day. Plus, it's only 90 minutes, which is also a, a real serious plus for a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> All right, so that's Zach's uh, 40 to 31. Moving on now to Adam. Give us your 40 to 31. All right, number 40. I know it's been Merlot, but we're not doing those. It is 2019's Uncut Gems. A fantastic film from the Safdie Brothers. I know I just got a Criterion release. I pre-ordered that. I had to because this is a fantastic movie. If Anxiety had a movie about itself, this is what the movie it would be. 
Uncut Gems, Adam Sandler, uh, gets one of the best performances. Uh, truly a miss, missed opportunity from Oscar voters. And yeah, uh, then my, oh, hold on. Well, my next pick is a movie I don't actually have. And it's from 1961 called The, the Hustler. Uh, probably the, one of my favorite sports movies ever made, actually, now that I've watched it and have sat on it. Paul Newman is fantastic here as this hustler pool player. The uh, scene where hit him and... Uh, Jackie Gleason go back and forth playing pool and those long hours, man, that, that was some riveting actually film going experience there. I really, really love the hustler a lot. Uh, number 1939 wizard of Oz comes in at 38 here as we're not in Kansas anymore. This is a great film. At, uh, when uh, Zach left uh, Kansas he, or yeah, he, uh, and went to Portland, he, he wasn't in Kansas anymore. So I don't know why I made that joke. Anyway, uh, we have 1999s coming in as uh, Fight Club from David Fincher. Uh, I want to hit, hit you. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. I, I like really like this film a lot. I think Brad Pitt and Edward Norton give some, some crazy performances here. I uh, pretty much love the whole cast here and the twist I was never expecting. And I still love rewatching this film as well. Uh, so number 36 on my list is Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. This is the bootleg edition. I have to, I have to rewatch the bootleg version to see the, the little longer cut here. But this is what our website's based off uh, Based off of. Almost Famous is a, a great film, good coming-of-age story. I love the performances here, and it's just a great film. Stillwater! Okay. Number 35. <laughs> number 35, I have my highest John Carpenter film, and that is... The Thing from 1982. I, I really love this film. I did a rewatch. We did a podcast episode with Rudy at Movies Reviews, and I can, I'm convinced this is just basically a perfect film now. Uh, I love the the practical effects here. It's a really it, crazy uh, to think about who actually the thing is. It's good a uh, little uh, mystery horror film there, so I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, number 34 is my favorite film from 2019, and that is Best Picture winner, Parasite. It is a fantastic Ooh. film. My my wife actually said she was not interested in this, but I was I pushed so hard on it that I convinced her to really like the movie a lot. And so Parasite is is one of those movies that I absolutely enjoy, uh, and I, I cannot wait to go back and rewatch it countless number of years. So number thirty three is a film I don't have, and that is uh, from nineteen seventy seven, directed by George Lucas, and that's Star Wars. Uh, you don't own Star I, Wars. I don't own Star Wars. I <laughs> I let my friend borrow the box set, and I didn't get it back because he moved. And uh, oh. which which reminds me, I still have your film, Todd, that I borrowed like three years ago. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Holy Motors. Yeah, that's right. So nice, Star Wars nice. is a film that I grew up. I could have dug up the VHSs because I do have my original VHS, but I got it in 1995 uh, for my birthday when I turned five. And I ate those films up ever since I was a little kid. I have the toys. I have all my Star Wars collection. And Star Wars is basically a film that has kind of uh, been in my existence my entire life. And it's one of my reasons why I'm such a big film lover. So Star Wars had to be on my list. I'm not calling it the other name. So Star Wars 1977 is my number 33. Uh, number uh, uh, number thirty two pick is from nineteen sixty, and that is Billy Wilder Wilder's The Apartment. I recently watched this last year, and Shirley MacLaine pops up another uh, last ten again, uh, as, as well as Jack Lennon. I actually really thought this was a really fun comedy. Shirley MacLaine completely steals every single scene. She is fantastic. She's beautiful in this movie, and uh, I, I like the comedy that Jack Lennon brings here as well. 
I will say this joke again because this is my number 31 pick, and it's from 1968, George Romero's. Hey, Terry, open up your uh, fridge. Give me one of those Dawn of the Reds because we have Night of the Living Dead uh, here <laughs> yes. from George Romero. So uh, this is a fantastic film. Is that Criterion? That I, this is the Criterion version. Of, yeah, oh. this is the Criterion one, yeah. A great movie here. Uh, I really am a fan of zombie movies. This is the best zombie movie that I feel like has ever been made, and I I can't really see anything at topping it. Train of Bazan is pretty damn good, too, but uh, if you really want a cool, kind of smaller budget film that they make the most of what they have, that is Night of the Living Dead. So definitely watch this one if you're a fan of zombie flicks. All right, recap us 40 to 31. 40, we have Uncut Gems, 39, The Hustler, 38, The Wizard of Oz, 37, Fight Club, 36, Almost Famous, 35, The Thing, 34, Parasite, 33, Star Wars, 32, The Apartment, and 31, Night of the Living Dead. I like how you have like the most eclectic list because you've you've got the you've got the indie hits, you've got you've got the classics, you've got you've got horror, you uh, you've got You've got the mainstream. You you've got like a little bit of everything more than any of us. I've I I, I take that means a lot because I <laughs> last last time I did this, I would I'm kind of embarrassed to go look at that list. I have it still saved and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed. But uh, now I'm, I'm I'm very proud of my list and the movies that I have here. And I, I know there's a lot of homework to be done, but this is a good starting point for me. I am really proud of this list. Yeah, so thanks. It's a cool group of 10. You actually have one movie in the exact same spot as I do, which is mad. Oh, there we go. But, uh, Perfect. Which one? I said a oh, movie. A movie. But okay. I will. Oh, that, that, that we're going to get to. Yeah. 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 I, I do actually have one that's really close on mine, too. I can see some Todd influence on this list, too. It's like, yeah. And there's definitely like, it's eclectic, but like, there's definitely some Adam like hallmarks. But then there's yeah. like, some movies from you know the 50s and 60s that I, I don't know if you've watched them recently, but you really it seems like you really got into those movies. So Paul New another Paul Newman shout out too. Oh yeah. The Hustler I watched The Hustler, The Apartment, Night of the Living Dead, uh, and are all in the last year watches. So and I've watched them wow. a couple times now. So uh yeah, they're I really got into them. I really kind of enjoyed them so they kind of always stuck with me so when i was making this list i was like yeah that kind of has to be in the list and it kind of slowly crept up and uh definitely the hustler has a lot of todd influence there i, I texted him i was like this is a great movie like, this is one of my favorite sports movies and uh i even watched the color of money not so good but it's cool to see paul uh paul newman come back in the scene with tom cruise walking around the pool table shooting his shots that's uh, that's pretty cool that's a cool scene to watch I own Night of Living Dead too, but I don't have the Criterion version. I have the three dollar bargain bin version that is thinner than a normal DVD case. It's like <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's like it's like that. Oh, yeah, I love those DVDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. got I've got two of them, uh, or no, I think I have three actually. Night of the Living Dead, and then um, uh, Boy in the Plastic Bubble with John Travolta, mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Um, and then, uh, oh, Todd, tell, help me with the, is it Kiss Daddy Goodnight, the Uma Thurman movie from like yeah, 1988? Right. Yeah, with Steve Buscemi. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. A, There's a come to the stable if I've ever heard one. Yeah, there yeah. we go. The, the thin DVDs are either exploitation movies or like NASCAR highlights. It's really, those are only <laughs> or Or apparently Night of the find. Living Dead. So, well, yeah. exploitation movie, but okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay. All right, my turn for my 40 to 31. And here we go. So number 40 on my list. I think it's been mentioned uh, before by some. Uh, it is from 2000 Requiem for a Dream. This is my, my ah. double 
case of Requiem for a Dream and uh, and Pie. And Pie is an interesting movie by Aronofsky as well. But Requiem for a Dream, we did we did a deep dive on it last year. It's it's amazing. It and so good. And just yeah, it's just it's just an amazing movie and intense and the music and the performances. Um, it and it might qualify for our power rankings that we're coming up that we're going to come up on a little later. Um, number thirty nine from two thousand two is Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. Higher up on Todd's list than his highest Spielberg movie, but uh, it's it's also another Tom Cruise, which Todd forgot to mention in the uh, in the um, prop bets. But uh, yeah. just a just a really creative oh, movie. So good. Yeah, and 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 I, it's it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's just such a creative premise, and it's executed so brilliantly, and it's so, so intense, and yeah, just awesome. Speaking of uh, of creativity the next couple kind of follow that too the next one i don't own it's the only one in this group i do i don't own number 38 from 1960 psycho uh it's uh the one hitchcock movie on my list uh it is it's incredible and i mean when you kill off your main character halfway through the movie and you completely flip the whole thing on its head and the ending the payoff of the ending <laughs> is ridiculous and amazing um number 37 on my list from 2001 one of the most creative storytelling feats of all time. It's Memento. Uh, just the idea of starting at the end and going backwards to so that you are discovering things at the same time the character is, since he has short-term memory loss. The, that whole concept is just brilliant. Brilliant, and I love it. Um, number 36 is one of the most quotable movies of all time. 1992, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. <laughs> there we go. Good one. Uh, I mean, it... Like I said, one of the most quotable movies of all time. You you have to love Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. If you haven't watched it, what are you doing with your life? Go watch it right now. It, it's it's brilliant, brilliant in so many ways. Uh, the next two on my list are Out of Respect. They've got to be up there and up there fairly high. Number thirty five from nineteen forty one. It's Citizen Kane. Uh, a lot of people think consider it one of the greatest movie feats of all time. Uh, it, it's number thirty five on my list. And yeah, just for the the sheer accomplishment of that movie it's pretty amazing uh i will say i do also own how green was my valley which is a pretty good movie and it gets unnecessarily crapped on because it beat citizen kane should it have beaten citizen kane no but it doesn't change the fact that it's still pretty good all right number 34 on my list from 1943 the classic casablanca another amazingly quotable movie and an, an amazingly watchable movie and rewatchable movie over and over again I mean, when you think classic movie, you think Casablanca and, and scenes just start rolling through your head. So that's on my list at number 34. Number 33 is a movie that I hadn't seen until Zach couldn't stop talking about it in college. That is from 2001 in the bedroom. Uh, another one that kind of qualifies for the list that we're going to be talking about a little later. Uh, but uh, it, it's a brilliant movie, brilliant performances, and I just the the emotion that comes out and through this movie is just outstanding outstanding uh number 32 i also own but it's not in this room it's downstairs because it's one my kids also love from 1977 i'll say the name that adam refused to say star wars episode for a new hope uh it is the one star wars movie on my list uh and this is and uh, uh i have it up here pretty high i think it's the best one um, the more I, the more I look at it, I mean, a lot of people say Empire Strikes Back, but 
Empire Strikes Back means nothing unless Star Wars was brilliant. And Star Wars was brilliant. And it's just so good. It's such a simple film. And uh, and again, another one of those that's incredibly rewatchable. Uh, so that's that. Num- and number 31 from 2006, The Departed, which we talk about all the time. Um, and it, it pained me to leave this out of the top 30, but there it is. So that is my 40 to 31. Let me recap it here. Number 40, Requiem for a Dream. Number 39, Minority Report. 38, Psycho. 37, Memento. 36, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. 35, Citizen Kane. 34, Casablanca. 33, In the Bedroom. 32, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And 31, The Departed. Dang, Terry. All nine, nine movies appeared in my top 100 and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I was like, I'm so upset that I, I couldn't squeeze that in my top 100. Nice, uh, nice. Yeah, so, so I was, yeah, they're all in contention there. So I, some of them I liked a little more, but some a little less. But great, great selection of films right there. I, and so Can't you had that. Star Wars 33. I had it 32. So yeah, there we go. There we go. Yeah. I guess I I like Star Wars more than you do. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of overlap on this list. I feel like the only movie that hasn't been mentioned so far is Memento. I don't know if anyone else has that. On uh, I mentioned. I mentioned. Oh, okay. It. I mentioned. I mentioned it low. Uh, a while, a while ago. ago, I don't remember when I mentioned it, but it was. A you while mentioned ago. it. It was number seventy-eight. There we go. So it was, yeah. This according to the fact checker. The fact checker. There we go. The fact checker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and and I mean, I guess there's nothing really to talk about since it, there's so much overlap. Then I mean, you all just yeah. uh, appreciate. So go yeah, ahead. it's a it's a great list. Great list of films. Is this kind of like how you put the Avengers and Deadpool right next to each other, Citizen Kane and Casablanca? Like, yeah. you did this kind of theme thing? I, okay. There, 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 there were some themes, and yeah, and like Hoosiers and Hoop Dreams were next to each other, and and I had like I had like a run of five like psycho thrillers at one point too. I mean, yeah. Sound of Metal and Sound of Fury. And- yeah, Sound and Fury and Sound of Metal were were right next to each other as well. Yeah, so there were there were some themes that popped up of movies that were all, but they were. They were in the same cat, same area of the list, so I just grouped them together to make the conversation a little easier. All right, Todd, here we go, 40 to 31. All right, I don't have all these on DVD. I'm not going to go grab my videotape, so. Boo. Um, my number 40, I don't <laughs> have. them on videotape? <laughs> yeah. Cassette. Cast, that's a castaway reference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my number 40 is The Breakfast Club. Which Good is movie. a movie I've seen dozens of times. Don't you? One of my favorite movies me. set in one building, and it's one of those things. It's like it's nostalgic in a way, but it also means a whole lot more when you think about it, and you can relate to every one of the characters. I, I love yeah. it. about the Breakfast Club. It's also my sister's favorite movie of all time. There you go. Uh, Shout out to Trisha. Claire did it. My number thirty-nine. I guess we're going to keep talking about Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which <laughs> I have always had. Empire Strikes Back above it, but the most recent time I rewatched these movies, I realized how many of the moments I look back on as being the best moments in Star Wars are all from A New Hope, and I just, I it hurt, but I had to, I had to put it above it. I, I Empire Strikes Back lower, but um, A New Hope uh, comes in at number thirty nine this this time. My number thirty eight, I have The Usual Suspects. <laughs> there we go. Which is. I mean, it, in high school, this was my favorite movie. I watched this movie a lot, and it, it's one of those movies that no matter what part of the movie you turn it on, it's always at the good part, 
And so you kind of always <laughs> kind of have to keep watching it. And it's just one of the best twisted screenplays of all time. I love that. that. That's like a perfect pull quote that you could put on a DVD case. No matter what part of the movie you turn on, it's the good part. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, uh, my number 37 was Adam's 37. It is Fight Club. Booyah. It's, this is a movie that I, I don't know. I mean, I, I could recite the movie basically in my head, but I don't know that I've seen it all the way through more than like maybe a handful of times, but it's like always mm -hmm. on. And whenever it's on, I'm always watching it. And so I just know so much of the movie. Brad Pitt and Edward Norton are probably the best combo of, of actors uh, that I could think of in the nineties for a movie like this. And uh, I, I love Fight Club. It's one of the great uh, David Fincher outings. Uh, number 36, I have Toy Story, which when, when I was a child, it was my favorite movie. I watched it all the time. I mean, I could watch Toy Story anything right now. It spawns sequels, spinoffs, like the forky shit that's on Disney+. Plus. I don't know. I mean, I, I would watch any of it just because I'm in love with Toy Story. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it, it's just movie going bliss, like the 88 minutes or whatever that it is. My number 35 is Taxi Driver which obviously we did a deep dive on. And another thing is just like iconic Scorsese. Uh, it's, I mean, and yeah, De Niro and Jodie Foster at, uh, at the top of their game. Paul Schrader is masterpiece basically of, uh, of screenwriting. I don't think he can really do a whole lot better in writing a movie. My number 34 is Sullivan's Travels, which oh. is the movie that could have beaten Citizen Kane, but it wasn't nominated because Preston Sturgis was always just overlooked by everybody when he, when his movies came out. I, I, I love the idea of a guy who's like, or this is like a way ahead of its time because he's, he's like this big Hollywood uh, comedy director and he wants to basically make like the Grapes of Wrath. And so he goes with his big old crew and his RV to go live with, like the poor people to try to understand them so he could make this movie. And it's just, it's a very self-aware uh, thing. It's really funny. It's really kind of sad and disturbing at the same time, but it's, it's one of the, the very great movies of the, of the 1940s. My number 33 is Goodfellas, which, I mean, I don't know what else we can say about Goodfellas. We did a very long podcast on it. And uh, I mean, you can go listen to that. We all adore the movie, everything about it and all the, Scorsese glory. Number 32 is Margaret. There it is. There it is. There it is. Um, of course, a very, very short three-hour movie that could be a lot longer. Probably should be. It should have been a miniseries, probably. But the three hours are just blow by. It's just um, um, as, a, as good as movies get. Well, Speak I mean, for I, think was, I think it was in the top five, <laughs> my top five of the, of the 2010s. And um, is everything about it. It's fascinating. Every character is a is, uh, fully fleshed out and, and perfect it's a great great movie and my number 31 i have the godfather part two which i have the whole collection here for a reason which is that when we actually revealed our 100 through 51 i said the wrong one i had the godfather part three at number 51 but i said the godfather part two <laughs> so and then there's a, and it, it's kind of weird because i've always had them right next to each other two and three because i always thought three was just slightly better than two but when the hmm. Godfather Coda, the death of Michael Corleone came out, it almost made me like three a little bit less. It, it kind of destroyed what I loved about the third one. So the third one moved down a little bit. The second one is, of course, this big spans of epic, and it's it's hard to take any issue with it. So I it, it, it was the first time that I actually had separation between the two, and it wasn't the way I was expecting to do it. So 
that the Godfather Part Two comes in at thirty-one. All right, Tapas. Solid films. Uh, number forty, The Breakfast Club. Thirty-nine, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Thirty-eight, The Usual Suspects. Thirty-seven, Fight Club. Thirty-six, Toy Story. Thirty-five, Taxi Driver. Thirty-four, Sullivan's Travels. Thirty-three, Goodfellas. Thirty-two, Margaret. And thirty-one is The Godfather Part Two. So I have a couple things to say about Sullivan's Travels. One, it's the only one in this group of ten I haven't seen. Two, I believe we need to give another shout out to Dr. Duchin for turning you on to Sullivan's Travels, right? Yes. Yeah, that was the first time I watched it, of course. Yeah, and 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 three, isn't that the movie that gave us the quote that we have in our in our little uh, our little snippet before our quote of the day? With a little sex in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I need to see that movie. It, it sounds amazing. Yeah, me too. Uh, let me uh, say something real quick about the usual suspects. I was actually thinking about putting this in my top 100 as well. It was de- I was debating it. Uh, what inevitably knocked it out was that my wife, I showed my wife it when I f- first watched it, like a week after I watched it for the first time, and she predicted who it was like in the first five minutes. And so I said, yeah, you know what? I might as well just put seven in its spot. So uh, that's what I did. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, when you watch the VHS of The Usual Suspects, which I did a lot, uh, like there's like a, like a three-minute trailer for the movie right before the movie, and it's like, who is Kaiser Sose? And it keeps showing the characters, and you could, I mean, kind of could show, sort of guess by the by the by the stupid mm-hmm. preview they have right before the movie who it was. And like people people I lent that movie to said the same thing. They're like, oh yeah, I knew it was, I knew it was that person all, all along. I'm like, that sucks. Yeah. It's a, it's a good movie. I didn't really realize who it was the first time I watched it, so I guess maybe I'm not as smart as my wife. That's what she she would say that though. I love how it's been 26 years and we're keeping spoilers out of this. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, do you have any reaction? Yeah, three of those movies I hate: uh, Usual Suspects, Fight Club, and Margaret. Otherwise, it's pretty good, pretty solid list. I think you've got some very like influential movies like. I, uh, I I love Sullivan's Travels too, although I'll say I haven't seen it in quite a while. Um, but uh, that was like such an influential movie. I mean, you see that formula now still today in, in movies, the kind of picture or excuse me, the kind of travelogue uh, type story. Um, I definitely want to rewatch it, though. I think we got to do that as a podcast. And uh, I got I just I Margaret at 32 is just it's amazing. I I don't know what you see in that movie, but. You know, Margaret Ma- better than Goodfellas. Margaret better than yeah. Taxi Driver and Star Wars and In the Bedroom. Toy Story. Rebecca. I mean, wow. I hey, I, I give you my. I, I, you're, this is you know the guy, the same guy who said you know the man, the moon is my in my top forty. So I, I give you props for that. I, I like authenticity, but I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed. He's dying on that hill. Okay, he's dying yeah, on the he, hill. He is dying on that hill. All right, so there is our 40 to 31. Next week will be uh, 30 to 21. And we'll be getting close to our uh, our top 20 and going from there. All right. It's now time for our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. And for this, uh, we are going back a week. I, I feel like we're playing catch up after we we had our our week of just revealing stuff. And so, like last week, we reviewed two movies that came out the week before. This week, we're reviewing something we should have reviewed last week, but we were busy reviewing the other stuff. Anyways, we're talking about 
The Suicide Squad. Robert Dubois. He's in prison for putting Superman in the ICU with a kryptonite bullet. I'm not joining your Suicide Squad. We'll see. My court date is coming up. And Miss Waller said maybe you could help me out. You're stretching in my door! Everyone stand down. Miss Waller, I don't- Stand down! I wouldn't take such extreme measures if this mission weren't more important than you could possibly imagine. Are you in or out? Good. Let's meet your team. It's okay, I'm not okay. Each member is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. I need to feel the raindrops on my head, on my head. Hey guys, sorry I'm late. Had to go number two. Good to know. Is this thing a dog? A dog? What kind of dog do you think it is, mate? I'm gonna go with Afghan Hound. Oh my god, is it a werewolf? Yo, they sent me next to a werewolf! Yo, let me out! Yeah, he's not a werewolf, okay? He's a weasel. He's harmless. I mean, he's not harmless. He's killed 27 children, but, you know. Your mission is to destroy every trace of something known only as Project Starfish. Any questions? Starfish is a slang term for a butthole. Think there's any connection? No. No. All right. Let's get it. This is suicide. Well, that's kind of our thing. I'm a superhero! That's my dad. I'm gonna get you out of your life. I'm going to get you out of here alone. Ratatouille, what do you got? Bird. <laughs> now, now it. Stay off the comp. Uh, not not Suicide Squad. This is the Suicide Squad. Uh, it, they are very different movies. Why and is the director right, covered up our logo in that picture? Yeah, yeah. Hey. Graphic designer, what is going on here? I was I actually mean, proud of that design, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Should have moved it over. The words can cover King Shark's belly. Come on. <laughs> okay, okay. But it, it wouldn't... Never mind. Uh, I mean, I, I think I think that's shouting out James Gunn, James Gunn on being on our on our podcast. I think that's what it's doing. Anyways, we're talking Suicide Squad. Todd, you are starting this off. Tell us all about it and what you thought. Okay, this is The Suicide Squad, not Suicide Squad. It is neither a sequel nor a reboot. It's just a redo. And it pretty much without like Oscar winner Jared Leto chewing up scenes. I don't know how this is actually greenlit because the director is also being uncanceled by making this movie. So it doesn't make, really make any sense. But it is something else. Um the, it starts with Amanda Waller, which is played by Viola Davis, and I still don't understand why she's in this movie. Uh, she puts together a task force of all the Suicide Squad members to infiltrate this island called Corto Maltese, and they're supposed to destroy some lab that has Project Starfish, which is a secret program that sort of threatens like the whole world. And you don't really know what's going on with that for quite a while, so it's a, it's a, little, it's a little weird. It keeps that from you for a bit. 
Uh, the team includes Rick Flagg, played by Joel Kinnaman, who is the best actor in the movie and the star of the movie. He's basically the guy who tries to keep everybody in line. Him, along with Bloodsport, played by Idris Elba. And uh, Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn is still in there. Stallone's King Shark, which I guarantee is Terry's favorite character. I kept thinking that. He's like, hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he has some fun banter with uh, John Cena's uh, Peacemaker, who is supposedly getting a spinoff series. He's like a giant child, but he's kind of fun to watch. Uh, J- Jai Courtney's in there. Peter Capaldi plays the bad guy. Daniela Melquire plays a girl who can like control rats. And then there's Polka Dot Man. Uh, he <laughs> throws polka dots at people. Uh, and um, But he's played by one of the most like an- anonymous... Um, character actors that we see in everything. David uh, Desmalshian, he was in The Dark Knight and in, like, basically everything else. Uh, so the cast is pretty loaded. Pete Davidson's in there, Michael Rooker, Nathan Fillion. The director's brother, Sean, plays a weasel, and um, Alice Braga, which is, he's always fun to see. Uh, the movie is like a giant mess that's kind of fascinating to watch. What it reminded me of initially was Army of the Dead, with like how out of control and violent the movie is, with Ball still being like really colorful and interesting to watch. The, the only real difference is that this movie has the R-rated freedom that the first one didn't, and it's got this, like, Guardians of the Galaxy-type quirkiness and tone and soundtrack, which I don't know why you could just throw old songs into a movie and make it seem hip. It should be the other way around, but I, somehow James Gunn is really good at doing this. Um, it also keeps, keeps from you, like, what happens in the first half hour. It's like this really cool action scene that you don't really know what that was all about until like, it's like, you know, three days earlier, but it's a super badass way to start the movie. So they kind of had to do it. But uh, overall the movie kind of, it's kind of a video game. Like they kept talking about the mission and like the setup and the staging of it. It, it like would, it was like a PlayStation, old PlayStation game, like Siphon Filter or something, or like Splinter Cell. It was like, that's what I kept seeing. Like when they're like going into the jungle and stuff. And it, it, it like truly tries to be subversive, but it's kind of bizarre and comic when it was like trying to be dark. I, I think James Gunn would be really good at doing something like uh, Denis Villeneuve is doing right now. Like if he remade like the fifth element or he remade like strange days or something like his like flair and sense of humor and like kind of like like six sense of humor. I, I think that would lend really well to those sci-fi flicks. I don't really think he necessarily needs to be doing these like superhero movies. But I don't really know what to do with this movie. I kind of felt like there was some like Star Wars spinoff stuff that 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 came up that I was kind of not really expecting. It, it's definitely a mixed bag. It had like a lot of weird diversions. I mean, it, I appreciate what it was going for. It didn't necessarily land everything. There's just too many characters is the main problem. Like Guardians of the Galaxy had like three or four characters that it really followed and you got involved with and you knew the characters. But this was like a dozen and it throws everything out the screen and you kind of get kind of get lost and, and to the point that they actually make fun of it when like they joke about milton being completely forgotten even though he's in like basically every scene like it, it, it was just i mean it, that 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 pretty much described what i thought of the movie like it needed more harley quinn she's the main draw of the movie i don't think it's quite as good as birds of prey that but it, this is still probably in the top three of the dc resurgence movies which is not saying much because i still only give it two and a half stars okay all right well Adam, I know you already have your rating on the books on the website, so let's go to you next and defend this movie. Because uh, I think you gave it three and a half stars, right? Correct. And I've seen it three times now. All right. Wow. All right. Okay, here we go. So I, I've, I've noticed myself 
uh, I have those movies that are strictly what we call Adam movies. I think we all have that, right? Uh, so movies that kind of qualify as Adam specific movies are obviously we can say DC animated movies, right? We can say that's a, strictly an Adam movie. And I've already, I've already seen two outings with the Suicide Squad, the Suicide Squad movie. Uh, I think I can't remember the, the little tagline, but Suicide Squad and then also Batman Assault on Arkham, which is the, the first one they ever did. Really good, solid animated movies. But other movies that qualifies are movies with uh, are hyper-violent, uh, has some, a lot of cursing sometimes, and are just like have a super bolt of energy drink like thrown into it. Like everything's thrown, everything in the kitchen sinks out there. I'm, I'm looking at the babysitter, even ready or not, revenge. Those are kind of like hyperactive movies type, type of thing. And this is kind of falls in that same camp with a comic book flair to it. Uh, for me, I think James Gunn kind of knocked it out of the park. Um, I, I will say that I have rewatched some stuff and it actually does take place after Birds of Prey. Uh, and they they do kind of say it follows after Suicide Squad with uh, Captain Boomerang, which is Jai Courtney's character. He said, oh, you're locked right. back up. And she references, uh, yeah, I got uh, at a speeding or some kind of car thing, which takes place shortly after Birds of Prey. That's kind of where I kind of see where it f fell into place, right? Uh, and I've seen other videos kind of back that up too. So that, that, that's another hero there. But anyway, the reason why I like this movie a lot is that it completely subverts your expectations. When I first went into this movie, I thought this was going to be a movie full of like 15 different characters and they immediately, well, I guess it's been out for a while. They basically subvert everything and they, they say, no, these aren't the characters you should need to be paying attention. These are the characters over here. You don't pick up on that. I, I kind of didn't like that at first, but when that movie progressed, I was like, oh, that's actually pretty kind of smart. I wish they would have kept uh, Jai Courtney because I think it's the best movie he's ever been in. Uh, his best performance is Captain Boomerang. Anyway, uh, I, I actually thought Jai, uh, John Cena is awesome as Peacemaker, and I know that they already filmed some of his shows of James Gunn, like filming six of eight of his shows that comes out in January for his HBO. I thought that he was really awesome. He was my, probably my favorite character. Um, I, uh, I enjoyed all the performances here, and it, because it fits that flair, and James Gunn kind of... Uh, made it his own. I think this is actually my favorite DCEU film out there because uh, it's one I can rewatch and can be just have fun with. And I think that's the best thing to say about it. It doesn't feel like they were trying to be, Warner Brothers was trying to be counteractive or counterreactive to Guardians of the Galaxy to try to make a Guardians of the Galaxy film. I felt like, no, they got the guy to do Guardians and he made it their own his own spin on it. Uh, Polka Dot Man is probably another big standout here. We saw him in Ant-Man. He's in the Ant-Man franchise. We saw Sylvester Stallone pop as King Shark. He was in the Guardians franchise. We see so many people from the MCU, like Nathan Fillion shows up. We have, uh, now, now I have it in front of me, but anyway, there's a ton of people from the um, MCU there. Uh, Viola Davis uh, gives Amanda Waller. I think she does a really good job, even though they wanted Oprah to be the original Amanda Waller, which I think she would have really? been crazy. Yeah, that That's was the original funny. casting. Uh, she she would have been crazy, but uh, she's a, probably more frightening in the the animated movies anyway. Uh, but I, I think the whole character, the whole cast here is fantastic. I think my daughter is a perfect rep representation of what Weasel is. She's just crazy, uh, crazy. And my dog is totally King Shark. He wants some nom noms. That's what I will say. Um, and anyway, uh, my favorite character, big shout out. I want to see more movies with Danielle uh, Melikor, who plays Ratcatcher 2. So yeah, there we go. I, I really enjoyed it. I know that really didn't tell why I like it so much, but I, I will stand by the 3.5 because it's so rewatchable as a, uh, as a fan of these kind of hyperactive films and also have some MC, uh, DCU flair. I didn't. Yeah. So there we go. So, all right. Okay. Zach, are, are, are you, are you closer to, to Adam or to Todd or are you, are you further down 
than I uh, think uh, I'm right in the middle. I give this movie three stars. Uh, you know, I was very skeptical going into this movie. Uh, I think the 26... We should make a documentary about the 2016 Suicide Squad because I think there was a lot going on there, not just in terms of David Ayer and Will Smith, but also I think culturally where we were in 2016. And I think where the trajectory of comic movies were, were going. The DC Universe in 2016 is really kind of interesting. <laughs> Um, so in a way, I wish this movie had maybe more acknowledged the 2016 movie, but I can also understand the, the reluctance to acknowledge its existence. It's not quite like Fantastic Four, those, those remates. It's not a complete uh, do-over, I would say. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie. I like, the, I like the idea that these are all losers, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not a huge DC fan, but I like, I, it, too often in the movies, we see all the A-listers, right? We even got that horrible Bradley Cooper movie, the A-team, the a right? Uh, these are all, this is like the I dirty dozen the of losers. Oh, that was bash, Terry. Um, this is the dirty dozen of losers. I, I really like that. I do think that um, I, I want to know more about uh, Mongal and Javelin and uh, TDK and Weasel. I think their sort of life expectancy is not as long as I was uh, hoping in this movie. Maybe we'll get to see more of them down the line. Um, you know, I wouldn't say there's anything particularly spectacular about this movie uh, because it's so much of it is Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, it feels so much like this was marketed as Guardians of Gal an R-rated Guardians of the Galaxy with a Deadpool sort of irony a little bit. Um, I will say, though, I did like this movie's sort of tacit critique of American imperialism. Um, because as the movie kind of goes along, we sort of see uh, the allegiance uh, to the Viola Davis character, what that really reflects, which is a sort of crit critique that doesn't really exist in like Guardians of the Galaxy or some of the other um, DC movies. I also am a little bit tired of Harley Quinn, I gotta be honest, after Birds of Prey, after the Harley Quinn show series that's on. Um, I think she, her, her, she is not the best part about this movie. The best part of this movie clearly is Polka Dot Man. Uh, who is a rising star and should get his own um, series, his own movie, his own uh, you know franchise? Uh, let's let's make that happen. Um, I also liked how this movie really felt like a comic book. It had some interesting titles and it had digressions that were kind of mini episodes that you really, if you read comic books, uh, which I did when I was a kid, uh, they, you know, they actually felt, it actually felt more like a comic, this probably, movie probably felt more like a comic book than any other DC movie for sure. Um, and just those digressions were kind of interesting and I love the climax with the big uh, starfish. I think we can say that now. I think everybody's read that online. So all in all, I give it three stars. I wish this movie was a little edgier. I wish it took more of a chance and it wasn't so derivative of Guardians of the Galaxy, but it's certainly an improvement on the original and I think it's uh, exceeding the expectations of simply uh, redoing the 2016 film. Yeah, uh, so I, I, I think James Gunn grabbed Guardians of the Galaxy and did that movie because it was the closest thing to Suicide Squad he could get in the MCU. And um, and now, it, after seeing this, it's like, oh, this is like the movie James Gunn was meant to make. And this is what he was trying to do with Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm at three and a half stars right with Adam. I think this movie is just so dang entertaining. It is, it is so much fun. And the first one, 
was so bad. And can we just can we just end the release the air cut stuff now? I mean, I don't think anything is going to save that movie. I've just, seen snippets just, of that script. For, it's it's bad. Just forget it. Yeah. Just forget it. The, the, this is this is so much better than anything you could ever come up with. Um, and and you've got honestly, I had to go back and check. It's like okay, which characters are held over from the first one? So and like okay, yeah, Viola Davis is and and Harley Quinn, but then there's Jai Courtney, there's Joel Kinnaman, and I four. think I think that was it. Those four, right? Yeah, those four. Uh, yeah, uh, my favorite was I mean King Shark was pretty great, but I would say my favorite my favorite was the Weasel just because it was it was ridiculous. <laughs> It's like, anybody check if the weasel could swim? <laughs> the weasel was great. <laughs> and and weasel weasel wins the uh, the high roller of the movie. Yo, absolutely. And, yeah. and TDK, totally. TDK also. I mean, yeah. what, is, <laughs> what does TDK stand for? And then when you find out what it stands for, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. The detachable I mean, kid. <laughs> the detachable kid. I mean, this this movie is so ridiculous and yet so much fun. I will say I'm kind of with you, Zach, in that I'm getting a little bit of Harley Quinn like, like overload, yeah. and she and uh, but but they realize that the fact that they have Margot Robbie and Margot Robbie loves doing these movies is like the best thing that the DCEU has going for it right now, and they just want to keep doing that as much as possible. I well, get Birds that. of Prey was the best one, so. <laughs> no, th- this is, this is the best one. I think this is no, this is ludicrous. I think I've only given two other DCEU movies thumbs up, and it was uh, Man of Steel and Wonder Woman. The um, only ones I gave oh, well, maybe 1984. I gave and, yeah, 84 and Birds of Prey are the only thumbs up that I've given of all of them. Anyways, yeah, I, don't know about I, I think I Zach, I see your point that it just reminds you of Guardians of the Galaxy, but I like I said, I think this is fulfilling what James Gunn wanted to do with Guardians of the Galaxy, in in that. It, Guardians of the Galaxy is the the MCU version of Suicide Squad, but Suicide Squad is one that's set up better, and he's the like one of the first ones that's able to achieve the superior version in the DC universe instead of the MCU. So, uh, so yeah, three and a half stars. This movie was so much fun, and yeah, I love Joel Kinnaman too. Uh, I, I honestly didn't know who he was when I watched the first one. And since then, he's one of the main characters in For All Mankind on Apple TV+. And so going into it now, I'm like, okay, yeah, Joel Kinnaman. I know who that is now. And so He's one of the leads in The Killing. Which... Oh, okay. But, but he, he, is, and Robocop. he is the perfect straight man to all the, the bonkers insanity that's happening around him. I think, I, I think um, uh, John Cena shows here that he actually can be a good actor when given the right material and the right part, unlike what he did in F9, because F9, he was horrible, because it was almost like he was, was like, well, I have to be Vin Diesel's brother, so I have to be as bad as Vin Diesel is in this movie to make it believable. Now he actually is given something that he could do something with, and he's great. And then yeah. Stallone is King Shark. I mean, it was perfect. I, it, it's amazing. Amazing movie. So much fun. And like Adam, like you said, so rewatchable. Like I want to go back and watch this movie again, just because it's just yeah. entertaining. Listening, to, un- listening to you no. and Adam makes me want to agree with Todd more. I think you're just reacting <laughs> to how bad the 2016 version was, and I feel like this movie delivers what it wants to do, but I don't think it does anything more than 
what it sets out to do. It doesn't feel that diff. It feels so much like Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy, like all these movies that we've already mentioned. So now I'm one that I I I barely gave Guardians of the Galaxy a thumbs up, and I hated the second one. I was not on the hype train of that movie like everybody else was. No, when I was doing those constant MCU rankings. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was always near the bottom. I still think it's like the third worst film they've done. Uh, maybe Captain Marvel, maybe a little below that. But um, uh, yeah, so that's why I always had a lot of the dislikes because they always put Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 like top five, and I just never agreed with that at all. Uh, Guardians uh, is just horrible. Yeah, or Guardians no, 2 is two, two Guardians was horrible, 2, yeah. and one was okay. It was fine. Guardian, yeah, Guardians 5, I, I still hold as top seven mcu film for me I, I i enjoy it but however and the suicide squad they did a, a director's loose cut an extended cut with more joker sequences and that actually expands more of the harley quinn stuff so i actually i'm not i'm not a big hater of the suicide squad it's not like the best one but it's not justice league the other josh whedon version but uh a big shout out one one person we haven't mentioned yet i want to give a big shout out to lynn ash which is uh polka dot's mom polka dot man's <laughs> mom uh, and it was not expecting her to be a giant starfish, was not expecting her to be Peacemaker or even a shark for that instance. Or if you, if you zoom in, she was Sebastian the mouse or the rat as well. You, they <laughs> made her a, a rat too. So yeah, shout out to Lynn Ash. So, and Patrice Elba fits so much better than Will Smith in this, in just in this scenario in general. I mean, it, Everything, everything they tried to do in the first one worked so much better in this one. And I, I know it, it's impossible not to compare it, but the comparison I think has nothing to do with how much I love this movie because I remember zero about that first movie. I remember nothing about the first one because it was just forgettable crap. Like the fact that you that you mentioned that Jared Leto's Joker was in the first one. That was the one film that he popped up, and I completely forgot that that's what it was. I, I don't know. It's, yeah, talk about uh, this is what happens when studios meddle with directors' uh, visions, and you get the Suicide Squad from a couple years ago because that movie completely changed. It was put completely a reactionary thing to Guardians of the Galaxy, which came out like two years before, and that's why everybody and with Justice League too. It's uh, studios need to like I know it's bigger properties, not so big big money makers, but they need to step back and let the directors work. That's what they you're paying them to do. Let them. Uh, make the movies that they want to make and uh, let them have certain directors have more reins because they, Hey, they might pull out an amazing product. They, there might be some flops there, but then maybe don't hire them next time. Uh, yeah, but let throw them... all the money out of director and say, you can make your R rated superhero movie. They're going to do what they want to do. David Iyer may have been able to do that, but he didn't because he was studios stuck. meddled. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think DC has also realized just go get the MCU directors. Like justice league is having issues. Go get Joss Whedon. And, but that failed. But then it's like, all right, we need to do another Suicide Squad. Go get James Gunn. I mean, he did he did the MCU version, and he made a great movie. All right. Well, he, uh, we've got two three-and-a-halves. We've got a three. We've got a two-and-a-half. Uh, did anybody see this in the theaters? No way. No. Okay. I didn't either. I saw, I saw it on HBO Max. So this is in theaters right now and on HBO Max. So uh, you can check it out. And one or the other, I could see this being a lot of fun on in, in the theaters, but I could see it being a lot of fun if you saw it like opening weekend when you would have a fairly decent crowd. Otherwise, it's just a giant screen with just you. So 
It I had mean, a 70% could... drop from week to week, by the way. 70%. Well, that's because you're not going to get the rewatches if you can just watch it on, on HBO true. Max. That I think that's true. what they're realizing that they're losing by doing the, the same day. You might get the, the initial box office boost, but the rewatches you're going to get at home. Yep. Pretty All right. Much. So that's the Suicide Squad. Moving on now, we are going into our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And Todd, you pulled this one out again. And so you got to pick again what we were going to do. And it's something we referenced a couple weeks ago. Tell us what we're doing here. Uh, So during our 100 through 51 reveal, it came up that uh, Zach wanted to do the best depressing movies because of one of the movies I mentioned. And Terry said, oh, yeah, we should do like that should be like a prop bet. You know, how many times a power ranking episode is going to come up? And then I just stuck in my (laughs) head. I was like, yeah, you know, depressing movies would be a fun list. And plus, I mean. That's the kind of movies that Zach and I, I know, at least love to watch. So that's what we're going with. The best depressing movies. Yeah, this is going to be a a serious downer here going through this list. Okay, so Adam is here. And one of our games is picking Adam's list. So since he's here, and he already sent it to me, so I have like his list locked in. uh, So he can't change it on who he wants to win. But we're going to reveal our picks for what we think. Yeah, he's rooting for me because I've, I'm so far behind. I think Todd has twice as many wins as I do. Terry or um, Zach. Terry or yeah. Zach. No, no, no. You, you can get rid of the second one. Just just me. Just, just root for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we're going to reveal our predictions for his list now. And then we will um, – and then we'll go from – we'll go from there. And we'll – so we know kind of how we do as we go along. So – uh, I'll go first. I'll go first since Adam's rooting for me to give him some time to, to fix his list. Um, so, uh, my wait, so we're gonna have Adam reveal his honorable mentions first so that we have more suspense going through the list. No, 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 no. Okay, so, I can do that. so here's, I can do that. here's my predictions for here's my predictions for, for Adam's list. Uh, number five, call me by your name, number four, Blue Valentine. Number three, Requiem for a Dream. Number two, Fruitvale Station. And number one, Schindler's List. That's my that's my predictions. All right, we're going to go to Zach next. Yeah, I, that's, I had a pretty similar list. Number five, Leaving Las Vegas. Number four, Monster. Number three, Blue Valentine. Number two, Requiem for a Dream. Number one, Schindler's List. I mean, uh, I had two of the same ones you guys did. I had number five, The Elephant Man. Number four, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Number oh, three, that's a good one. Requiem for a Dream. Number two, Blue Valentine. And number one, The Passion of the Christ. Ooh. No Ten Commandments. <laughs> no Ten Commandments. <laughs> Maybe he'll surprise us. All right. All right. So let's see. Let's see uh, what our lists are here. I'm going to go first in, in the reveal. So uh, going to my number five. First, so one of the things I thought was really interesting is we said this is best depressing movies. I thought it I thought it was it was kind of interesting that we said best depressing and not most depressing good movies. Um but it kind of hmm. became a hybrid of them. Like like what are what are I was looking at them like, all right, what are what are some great movies that are super depressing? 
and and kind of went from there. So my number five is is one that Todd just mentioned for on being on Adam's list. It's from 2004. It's The Passion of the Christ, uh, directed by Mel Gibson. Um, th- this is just one of those movies that, looking at the the subject matter, it was so well done. But it's one of those movies that when you watch it, it's impossible to not have have just like this pit in your stomach, and to just be in like this downer mood for the rest of the day, especially uh, Mel Gibson really leaned into like the Catholic side of things in this and like the stages of the cross and focusing so much on the brutality of the crucifixion and, and, and like the resurrection got like a 30 second cameo at the end. Um, it, 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 it laid in so much on the, just the depressing brutality of what happened um, on the cross. It, it is as depressing of a movie as you can come across. Um, and, uh, and the reason it's only number five on my list is when I look at, it, I say it was really well done. I don't know if it, I would say it's a masterpiece, but it's what it, for what it was, it was really well done. So that's why it's there. So it's, it's a super, super depressing, good movie. So number five on my list, passion of the Christ. Zach, you're next. Number five. Oh. Okay, I, I didn't make a distinction. I just went most depressing. I thought that's what we were doing. So most depressing good movies, is that what you're going with? Well, I mean, sure. That's not what I said. Well, so if you have like downsizing, then that's not gonna qualify. No, no, I didn't I didn't I didn't go that direction. These are these it are to be good movies. Yeah, these are good, all good movies. These are all good movies. I gave all of them thumbs okay. up. It's, it's not I like, thought we were doing the movie good movies about depression. Sorry, oh, I, okay, that was that. No, never mind. I'm just kidding. And Sideways would be number one, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my number five was a tie uh, between Fahrenheit 9/11 and Fahrenheit 11/9. Um, maybe you know, there's some personal uh, subjectivity in that kind of maybe similar to Terry's pick. Uh, gosh, uh, I mean, I thought a lot about the experience of watching these movies and. Uh, Fahrenheit 11.9 I saw in the theater and again I won't get too much into it we don't need to get into that but it was probably the most unbearable movie I've ever watched and I seriously considered leaving I could not take what I was watching so and and I remember 2004 it was similar to Fahrenheit 9.11 although in retrospect not quite uh, the, the the level so it, it depressing movies that I will never watch again even though they're both well made uh, yes, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that too, too depressing. So yeah, uh, I know I'm not supposed to have ties, but they're kind of perfect ties. I'll also say I purposefully stayed away from documentaries because there are so many depressing documentaries out there yeah. that I, I was just like, no, I'm not even going to touch documentaries. We're going yeah, with this. These are, the only doc- these are the only documentaries on my list, but there were several documentaries that I also thought of that, that could fit easily. All right. All right. Todd, number five. Uh, I also went with movies that were depressing enough that I don't ever want to watch them again. And, yeah, that's kind of uh, what I was looking yeah, at, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So movies my number that, five, like, that was great, but I never want to see it again. Yeah. My number five is uh, Midsommar. Which oh, might not be depressing in the most obvious ways, but it leaves you with this like really somber, icky feeling leaving the movie that you just kind of are ultimately depressed. Like it took a while to like shake that movie off. Like it, it's a, uh, 
it's like really harrowing to watch and like every character has such high hopes and they're just beaten down again and again and it's set in the daylight so it's ultimately kind of confusing and just feels off and just brutal and I don't really have any desire to ever watch it again but I remember all of it I liked it but I mean it's one of those movies that's just like that I mean it has the slightest bit of light at the end for one character and that's it but it's just like that that movie is a down down movie I disagree I would have never considered that movie I I I was laughing at the end of that movie so so was the main character yeah Yeah. it's a pretty upbeat ending in a lot of ways I I, yeah yeah. I mean the the whole thing with the the bear I mean it is a brutal movie to watch it like it, it it's it's brutal and especially it starts super depressing but by the end of it, yeah, like, this was just ridiculous and amazing at that the point. First, the first 30, that's a great point, Terry. The first 30 minutes is depressing. The rest of the movie. The first 30 I, minutes is standard. The rest of the movie is super depressing. Did we watch the same movie? I mean. Yeah. It's I mean, a great movie. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting I, 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 I love the movie, but I, yeah, I don't great, know if I'd too. call it depressing. I would call it almost like more of a revenge fantasy than depressing. It had one of my favorite lines of that year, and it was like when Will Poulter's like, "I'm, I'm gonna follow her over there." And, I mean, that that was like <laughs> the audience of the theater I was in was laughing at at the end. So well, I mean, that could that could change your reaction to the movie for sure. Maybe, then maybe, yeah, maybe I'm influenced by that. It, it, you... It's it's a it's a crazy movie, but I wouldn't necessarily say it was depressing. I'd watch it again. Are you interested? In the director's it's two and a half hours. I can't. I can't imagine Zach watching it again. Oh, I. Well, I think Florence Pugh mitigates that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Or negates it. The, the director's cut. I'm interested in watching it. All right. Top ten of the year. Let's go. Adam, number five. Okay, I had to pull an audible at the last second here. Um, no, yeah. number five. I'm just Damn. kidding. Calm down. Calm down. Number five is a movie that we've already talked about. At least one of us have talked about. Will appear later on in my list too. Number five is Blue Valentine. Hey, uh, I, think, I think this is just like the saddest relationship of all time. It just makes you kind of uh, appreciate uh, the good things in our, your relationships. And seeing this uh, relationship deteriorate right in front of your eyes is kind of just kind of man. It's just not a happy feeling, and it is. A beautiful performances from Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams, who uh, lived together from my accounts from kind of reading stuff on it, like lived together before making the movie. And man, it, it's seeing the, the different stages of the relationship. It, it, it's really hard to uh, watch at times. And it is, it is sad to see their worst moments. And it is definitely one of those movies that when I thought about the most depressing movies, I had to put this movie on there. But it's also one of my favorites. So uh, the Blue Valentine had to make my list at number five. Uh, it could probably have been higher, uh, but there's just some other things that are probably just a little more depressing for me. So Blue Valentine number five on my list. I'm gonna say I've had two wins so far. Blue Valentine is on your list, and you did not Merlot Passion of the Christ, which means Todd's number one is not on your list. Oh, Ooh. I forgot that we're. Oh, oh, did you forget Uh-oh. to Merlot? Uh oh. Yeah, I forgot the Merlot. Well, well, I had Blue Valentine on there too, so you got to remember that. All right, whatever. Okay, it's okay. This is, Todd, this is the Todd Invitational. Don't forget. That's what you're yeah. this <laughs> When yeah. Todd wins this one, he'll do the happiest movies for next power ranking. Maybe. There we go. There we go. All right, I would put Midsommar four. on my list. 
Number four on my list is uh, is written and directed by Bobcat Goldthwait. It's starring Robin Williams. It is world's greatest dad. Oh come on, that's not depressing. Oh, it is such a it is such a disturbingly depressing Dark movie. Dark comedy shouldn't count. It's depressing material. It is so yeah, depressing. But... I mean, just the, this the concept that you have a, a kid who dies under very questionable, embarrassing circumstances. <laughs> And and the dad who is is the definition of if you can't do teach, and uh, and because he's a failed writer that becomes a high school English teacher, that ends up getting finally notoriety for his writing because he fakes his son's suicide note in his diary. I mean, this is it. it yeah, it's a, it's a dark comedy, but it, it's so just like awkward and depressing and just yeah i i mean it's a great movie but it is definitely one i never want to watch again because it is, it is just so wrong in so many ways and just but like the the revelations that that robin williams character goes through throughout it's just uh uh i i, I love that movie like i i actually have seen it a couple of times but i mean i respond to bobcat goldthwaite his like aesthetic so Ah! so i don't know if you guys remember this (laughs) i don't know if you guys remember this but the very first time all four one of the first times all four of us were on screen was top five dark comedies and this appeared on my list so there we go world's greatest dad good good call but it is a very depressing dark comedy so that's number four on my list world's greatest dad zach number four Okay, so uh, number four on my list, I think uh, one thing that makes for great depressing movies are when characters realize that they've spent their entire lives wasting time or they've wasted their energy on something that they can never quite accomplish. And number four on my list is a movie that takes place over a great deal of time. It's actually not a movie I particularly love. I actually think it's a little bit overrated. Um, It did get several Oscar nominations. It is from 2018. It is Cold War by Powell Palakowski, or whatever you say his name. Um, I think Todd's the only one who's seen this movie, but it is a thoroughly depressing movie when you think more, mostly about the ending, which I really don't want to spoil too much, but it just shows the futility of these characters that- uh, Adam's, got the, Adam's got the disc right there. Well, apparently it hasn't opened it, uh, so I'll, no, I'll, you know, I'll, tre- I'll tread lightly here, but it's, you know, it's about- Two people who uh, are soulmates, essentially, and uh, de- have a perfect uh, uh, romantic, physical uh, con- at- attachment and connection, but are ne- their relationship is never able to materialize because they're in separate countries and they're in different relationships over time. And then you just get to the, you watch it, and I mean, it leaves a sort of emptiness, which is why I didn't, I didn't love the movie. You, you kind of watch it and you're like, these people never, never accomplished what they wanted, what they set out to accomplish in their lives. And it's really sad thinking about this 15 or 20 year period that we watch and their life is just wasted. Um, Palakowski says it's based on the life of his parents, which is really interesting. Um, I admire the movie, but I just don't ever really want to watch it again. It, it's just, uh, it p- p- puts you thoroughly in a pretty miserable mood and you start thinking about your own life and where you were 15 years ago. And gosh, I, ha- I have like a really negative reaction to it. Not to say that it isn't an admirable movie and beautifully done, but geez, like I, I have no interest in watching it again. Nice, that's a good review. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have <laughs> thought about it for this list, but that's, I mean, it's an interesting choice. 
I need to watch it. All right, Todd, number four. My number four is the Larry Clark movie Kids. We're low. Okay. Really? Wow. Okay. There we go. I, I mm. could have kind of seen that coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Adam, number Ouch. four. Uh, number four is an Oscar-winning uh, performance in this film by the supporting actress, and that is from, I don't remember what year this is called, but Precious. Precious. Uh, yeah. That's so, good call. Based off, uh, push based off the novel by Sapphire. is the full name. Uh, but man, watching a teenage girl go through her life with an abusive mother, uh, a sexually abusive uh, step or basically a male figure in her life. I can't remember if that's her father and I don't necessarily think it is, but uh, and seeing her just getting knocked down at every occasion uh, is really just the definition, one of the definitions of depressing of watches. It's a uh, Gabrielle Sidibe uh, giving a fantastic performance, uh, uh, her breakout performance. We don't really see her too much anymore, but she was absolutely fantastic in this movie, giving one of those performances that I just am heartbreaking, uh, heartbroken watching. So I had to put this on my list when I thought about this category. So uh, precious, if you would like to, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's my number four pick. So I don't really know what else to say. That's a great call. Sad movie. That's a great call. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a that's a good one. Yeah. All thank right. You. <laughs> uh, so one of the things is I was going through my list. I wanted to uh, only like have one movie like per like certain categories because uh, you can you can have a lot of the same type of movie on a on a depressing list like this, and so. Uh, number three on my list is like the the depressing revelation like at, at the end of a movie climax type of deal and looking at it, it looks like Todd and I are the only ones that have seen this so I'm going to be really really careful because Zach and Adam you both need to see this movie it's from 2011 but it was nominated for best foreign film in 2010 it's uh directed by Denis Villeneuve um <sighs> This this movie is insane and it's so it's so good it's so well done but it, it's uh it it starts off with this woman dying and her adult twin children are given a task to fulfill her last wish of of delivering two letters to um to her to their father who they've never met and their brother who they didn't know existed and they have to go back to the Middle East and uh, discover what her past, what their mother's past looked like and what it was all about and, and what she was involved in before she, um, she came to, I think she would, I think it takes the original, it takes place in Canada, I think. But um, it, it's, it's a brilliant movie, but it's one of those that, that just the, the, the ending just like kills you and, and just, it's it, it puts it on this list and I yeah you guys need to see the movie on Sunday it's my number three agreed <laughs> agreed Todd you, you agreed it belongs there well, yeah I mean, well yeah and I mean yeah you reviewed it on the podcast right I mean yeah yeah the one yeah. film I haven't seen it, of his it, it was it was one of my it was a it was an Oscar watch last year because last year was 10 years since it was nominated and it was a it was a film that put Denny Villeneuve on the on the map so 
Watch the movie on Sunday. Zach, number three. Okay, number three is a movie that Todd and Adam have both seen. They actually saw it before me. And uh, I'm a big admirer of this movie. We all are. And it is uh, the 2018 film Socrates from Brazil. Uh, you know, I'm glad they recommended this movie to me. It's 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 a great Zach movie, but I think you know it's uh, it's also a movie that is a great coming of age story about uh, again poverty in this in this area of Brazil and this 15 year old kid whose mother has died at the beginning of the movie. Um, he is uh, struggling with poverty. He's struggling with education. He's struggling with coming to grips with his own sexuality. Um, he is ostracized by people in his family, by uh, people who he tries to get jobs for, his landlord. Um, and basically, it leads him to the brink of um, uh, suicide ideation. And uh, it's an incredibly moving movie. Uh, the actor in it, uh, who's, I think, a uh, amateur, non-professional, is uh, absolutely astonishing. Um, it's a really great movie to watch. Not exactly the most, uh, you know, uplifting movie. Um, I think, you know, a, a, you, a cynically you could call it poverty porn, but I think that the director sees, you know, hope in this character. And there's, a, I think, a reason for it to be made because unfortunately a lot of people probably see themselves in the shoes of this character. So uh, really sad movie. Uh, sad that people have to live uh, that way in part, different parts of the world, not just in Brazil, but even here in the United States. And uh, it's a movie that uh, I haven't forgotten at all since I first saw it. I wouldn't necessarily thought that as depressing necessarily. Like, I think I build it as like the, the Brazilian moonlight. And I don't, I don't really necessarily think it's depressing to watch because I think there's enough of it that that makes it something different. But I mean... I can understand that that'd be a downer movie. The it is definitely, yeah, it's downer for the sure. The whole movie is leading to his, you know, desire to kill himself. I mean, the scene after scene are all these people that are just rejecting him and casting him out of society. Um, it's thoroughly depressing. I do think there's a little bit of uplift at the end of the movie, but uh, it's just, it's not a fun ride at all. But I think it's a necessary movie to empathize uh, with people who are on the margins of society. And uh, it's sad, but it's a, it's very true. And I admire the director and, and the courage to make a movie that was unglamorous. And, uh, you know, what is what does Lester Banks say? Uh, you know, um, uh, unmerciful, right? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Honest and unmerciful. Honest yeah, and unmerciful. That's what it was. That's what yeah. it was. All right, Todd, number three. My number three is from 2003. It is 21 Grams, Ooh. which, I mean, I think in your R2 is great at making depressing movies, but this is the only one that was really just like that big of a gut punch. Like, there's something about the way he shot it that just seems vile and like exploitative and like lived in and in like the best and most disturbing ways that. It's about like a, you know, this freak accident that brings these three people together and their lives are changed for the worst. It's basically all of them. And um, it's incredibly bleak to watch. And it, like the process like leaves you just like down, like as down as any movie that I've ever watched. And it's fascinating. And the actors are brilliant. They were all three nominated for Oscars that year, deservedly so. But it's rare that a movie like that could actually affect my mood that much. I do not want to revisit this movie, but it is forever just like stuck in my brain. And uh, I, I mean, I, I do say that I kind of love the movie, but I, I don't really want to watch it again. 
Is, is that potentially the most depressing movie title of all time? Yeah, I'm probably. <laughs> once you know what it is, yeah. Once you once you know what Twenty One Grams is referring to, uh, yeah, I think so. I I considered um, putting a Morris Peros on on like my long list, um, for for similar reasons. But Twenty One yeah, Grams is one that I like. He 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 makes yeah. really depressing movies. Twenty One Grams is one that I really don't remember a whole lot about, but I remember it was, it was a good movie. All right. Adam, number three. All right, number Come three. On, give me something here. Give me something here. This is a point for somebody. Uh, number three is a movie that has actually been mentioned today, and that is Requiem for a Dream, which would be I have that a little one higher. It will be a little higher up on my uh, top of the list. I had it number three. I, I had too. it number three. So did I. You did oh. too. Oh, sorry. Anyway. Three. Three. There we go. Number three. <laughs> I didn't want to fast bender that. There we go. Um, <laughs> Requiem for a Dream is a movie that is definitely about addiction uh, and a lot of a lot of different addictions too. So it's really depressing to see these different characters go through their life as they are struggling with the, their demons and seeing their deterioration on screen. Fantastic performances from all every single actor here. Uh, Aronofsky gives his makes his second best movie. Uh, I, I absolutely love Requiem for a Dream here and seeing um, it's one of those movies that I definitely want to revisit, uh, but I'm scared too because I know it's going to put me in a downer mood. So uh, Requiem for a Dream is, I know you guys, just, you deep dove the movie too recently, so definitely check that out. And that was an interesting deep dive listen, so you should probably uh, listen to that more. So anyway, Requiem for a Dream number three for my my list. See, I've seen Record for a Dream probably 10, 10 times. And the, yeah, it's, it's depressing. But I mean, that that is the best kind of movie that you can make about being depressing. You know, yeah. Like that, that, that movie is an experience and one I don't mind having more than once. Well, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to rewatching it. They had a 4K release. So I'm kind of interested to see how that it looks. And he, he's a good, great, great director telling a very riveting story. So. Definitely looking forward to rewatching it. Even like I said, I was scared, but we'll we'll take a look. I'll, I'll recap later. <laughs> All right. All right. Number two on my list is possibly the quintessential film of I saw it. It was brilliant, and I never want to see it again. Todd already mentioned it. It's kids. Yeah. This movie is. I mean, talk about a gut punch. So. IMDb's description of it is a day in the life of a group of teens as they travel around New York City skating, drinking, smoking, and deflowering virgins. And I think that's the best description of this movie. And it is, it's the first, I think, the first screen appearance of Chloe Sevigny. I think the first screen appearance of Rosario Dawson. Um, directed by Larry Clark, written by Harmony Karine, who brought us Spring Breakers and the Beach Bum and stuff like that. This movie is messed up, and, and it's one of those that you you have to experience because it's so well done, and it's such a powerful film. But I never want to touch this again. Like I feel dirty even talking about it. It it is such a ah, uh, yeah. It it's it's just an amazingly depressing film. Thought it was on your list too. 
Yeah, it, it combines that like unflinching Larry Clark thing with like the I don't give a shit what anyone thinks of me Harmony Corrine thing. <laughs> and it just combines into this thing that's just like so I don't know, it's just so dirty and like yeah, it's great. It's it's greatly acted. It's I mean, it's I mean, brilliant writing and everything, but like and, they, and combined with the fact that the one kid, the the best character, Casper, like the actor died like soon after that too. Like I don't the movie just sort of like lives in my memory and I think it could kind of just stay there. I don't really want to watch it again. It could just you could stay where it's at, <laughs> but it's a great movie. But yeah, I don't want to watch it again. Definitely, definitely. Okay, that's my number two, Zach. Number two. All right, uh, number two is a movie I think just Todd has seen and and me. So again, I'll be kind of careful about it. It's an adaptation of a great Russell Banks novel, which I read shortly after watching this movie because it made such an impact on me. Uh, it is from 1997, directed by Adam Egoyan. The film is The Sweet Hereafter, a movie that is set in a very chilly village in Canada. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously snow, snowy movies all have to be depressing, right? Um, but it also shows the aftermath of a really tragic school bus accident in which uh, about like 20 school-age kids uh, perished. That's always, you know, that's 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 a great up, uplifting way to start uh, the movie. Um, so, but what's even more depressing is the idea that uh, maybe the kids actually had it good because all the survivors have this unbelievable guilt, um, starting with the bus driver herself who did survive the accident. Uh, we also have the Sarah Polly character in the movie. Her name is Nicole. She's one of the survivors of the accident too, but she's now a paraplegic from the waist down. We get these um, parents of these kids who are uh, in just um, unreconcilable, irreconcilable grief. Um, and then on top of that, we have the main character played by Ian Holm, who is basically an ambulance chasing lawyer who goes to the town to try to uh, generate a class action lawsuit against the school bus company when all these parents don't really have any interest in that. There's anger, um, but it's anger not necessarily at this uh, corporate entity, it's anger at each other. It's anger at the town for keeping these long buried secrets that actually preceded the bus accident by uh, a really long time. Um, the, the Sarah Polly character in the movie is maybe the most heartbreaking. She has a secret that's kind of revealed midway through the movie that um, she then reveals to the town kind of in a climactic courtroom scene that doesn't feel forced it feels really organic and uh yeah just uh ho horrific uh drama actually the the school bus accident itself is seen um in the in the midst of the movie too which is just a, a horrific uh scene to watch so again adam egoian was great at making kind of macabre downer movies in the mid 90s uh, exotica is not exactly an upbeat movie either but this is the one that really kind of sticks with you and provides a gut punch so really awesome movie though Thor thoroughly highly recommended it's just um a, a downer feature yeah i mean yeah I it, it, again wasn't one that i thought of but yeah it's a good one and that, that's kind of the a theme here it's what what did you think of which I well mean, yeah and, that, and we all have a different idea of what depressing is too so. yes <laughs> well and, I, and again it's it's looking at are we looking at the best depressing movies or the most depressing good movies. I think there's a definite distinction there. I would have never thought of kids as a depressing movie. I, I messed up is a better adjective to use, but like, 
I think the I think the Chloe Seventy character, the, the trajectory that she goes on, is really heartbreaking in that movie. But I don't think I would categorize anyone else as depressing. I think also because that movie has so much life. Like the Sweet Hereafter is such a downbeat, sad kind of elegiac movie that moves very slowly, whereas some of these other movies are. I don't know, the pacing just doesn't, I wouldn't correspond it with depression, depressing. I, I looked at it as it was one of those perfect, like I said, those perfect, I never want to see it again movies. Which is quickly what this list is morphing into. Maybe we should have yeah. just called it that. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, I think so. Todd, number two. My number two is the Best Picture nominee from 2002. It is The Hours. Mm, that's and a good one. Interlocks three women's stories at different periods, including all subjects of AIDS and loveless marriages and mental illness. And it's all told beautifully, but it's really emotional to watch. And it isn't the same type of like, I hate my life type of depressing as most of my list. But I mean, it is something that gets inside you and it is painful, like especially the Julianne Moore uh, parts, like they're really wrenching. And I I mean, her performance is amazing and it's, it's but it, it's real and convincing, but it's incredibly sad. And it brings you into her like world of despair. It's it's a it's more of like a somber, depressed movie, but it is depressing nonetheless. And um, it's really good. And I I have actually have I've only seen it once, and it was one of my my top movies of that year at one point. But I just I mean I haven't revisited, it and I, I kind of have a hard time wrapping my mind around doing that. It's a good pick. It's a very good pick. It it yeah. It's uh it's not exactly a fun time at the movies. Probably would have had better. <laughs> I did see it in theater. I, I, it, uh, it probably would have had better, better Oscar odds had it been a little more uplifting. I probably but. saw it for the first time about five years ago. All yeah. right. The I good, mean, good, and, good... and Oscar odds, it did get nominated for Best Picture. That's true. You could play a drinking game with all the suicide attempts in that movie. That basically tells you Slash everything you need this to know. List. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Adam, number two. All right. So, um, you know, I was trying to put this list together to help Terry out. And I mentioned one of these movies in this is a tie because we just got done watching kind of Band of Brothers. So I mentioned both of these movies on the show. The Boy in the Striped Pajamas and Schindler's List. Did I really get four of his movies, right? Schindler's yes, List. She, I got yes, Schindler's List. I, I, I won the thing. Dude, because of the tie. Well, yeah, you got that on a tie, too. Yeah. <laughs> but you got both of the ones that he tied. No, I did. I yeah. didn't put Schindler's list. I got his number one, though. Oh, you got, yeah. Oh. I was trying. Yeah. I was trying. But anyway, Boy in the Striped Pajamas, I actually heard it when I worked at this hardware store. This guy mentioned this movie to me. I was like, okay, I'll take take a look at it or whatever. And yeah, you, it's a slow building kind of like, oh, doom that you feel like these these two young boys one's on one side the other one's uh in the the camp and um a prisoner and uh it, there's a friendship uh, blooming there and uh you just know that what's going to happen and eventually it, it, it ends into a gas chamber where both the boys along with several other people are dead are killed uh spoiler or two yeah start well yeah <laughs> this is the one movie i'll spoil <laughs> no yeah. but anyway uh it's a, such a sad like depressing you just slow build and that's sometimes what depression is sometimes it just kind of slowly builds until it eventually takes over uh your feel your your mind so that it's definitely a slow build up and schindler's list is one that i say i will never 
want to watch again because I, I definitely appreciate what Spielberg did here. Uh, but I definitely want to rewatch this one again. I watched this for the first time a few years ago, and uh, this is by far like Spielberg's best, probably best movie, best made movie, most important movie, probably. Uh, it Liam Neeson giving one of his best performances to Ray Fiennes as well as uh, another World War II film, and seeing this kind of a story. This one has a little more happier ending because of. Uh, they, everybody gets out and Schindler was able to save so many people and also seeing all the different actual survivors show up at the very end too, to honor Schindler. I thought that was uh, fantastic. So uh, those are two movies that I will put down as my World War II choices for depressing movies. Yeah, I only said the Boy and Striper Jam was because you mentioned it on that podcast. So <laughs> That's what I was going <laughs> off of. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I I haven't seen the movie, but I know the story. Um, oh, I, I sorry have for a lot. No, no, no. I I know the story, and I, I have a lot of a, a lot of students have read the book. Um, so, I, I I knew about the book before I knew about the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Good choices. Um, and yeah, Schindler's List is one of those movies that, as soon as it it felt like as soon as it was released, everyone knew this is like an important movie that is an instant classic. And it feels like it it belongs in like the lore of like the, the greatest movies of all time as soon as it was it was released. So, but it's not my number one. I thought about oh, yeah. making it my number one, but um, I like I said, I, I kind of have everything in categories. It gives, you, it gives you hope. Depressing movies shouldn't give you hope, right? It does give you some hope, but it is very depressing. But um, but it it kind of it. My number one has a similar theme. And it is also a masterpiece, but it is more depressing. Um, and it is from 1982, Sophie's Choice. Um, this is my number one. And I'm just looking at the movie poster here, and it's saying, you know, best movie of the year, best movie of the year, uh, best performance of all time from Meryl Streep. But then one of them just says, shattering. And I think that's like the perfect explanation of Sophie's choice. Um, and yes, Meryl Streep gives an amazing performance and Kevin Klein is amazing. Uh, Peter McNichol is also brilliant in this as Stingo. Um, but it's going along and it's just, it's just kind of this interesting relationship drama and this love triangle that's building. And then you get to the scene that explains Sophie's choice, which is one of the, the best like constructed scenes of all time one of the best acted scenes of all time. And then you add to that the way the movie ends. And it just, it just guts you, man. And I, I watched this movie and said, this movie is a masterpiece, but man, this is a downer. And I, I know it's kind of, it's kind of like a, is it a concentration camp movie? Because I mean, because, because Sophie is a concentration camp survivor. Is is this a is this a World War II movie? Be, I mean, it spends like thirty seconds actually in that setting, but that thirty seconds is powerful enough to to make it to make it one. It is it, it is just brilliant. But I don't know if I could go through that that emotional roller coaster again because this is a movie that is an emotional roller coaster. So my number one, Sophie's Choice. That movie was mentioned in The Girl Next Door. 
Yeah, anytime, anytime the movie becomes synonymous with, uh, oh, you're gonna make a Sophie, you're you're gonna make a Sophie's choice, or what's yeah. that's that's such a Sophie's choice. I mean, it, it's become a catch-all for everything that is uh, misery. So it, it, you really can't fault that pick, in spite of the fact that the movie actually does have some comic moments in it. People forget that. I mean, the, the oh, Kevin yeah. Klein character is sort of a hoot in the first, like, 60 minutes. I mean, he's pretty toxic, too, but, like, he's kind of crazy in that movie. But the last half hour, 45 minutes, I mean, it is it is the most downer movie, downer ending of, like, all time in, in every way. So, from, like, the reveal on. So, that's my number one. Zach, number one. All right, my number one is also my number one movie of 1999. Uh, it might make an appearance on my top 100 list. We'll see. It is Tim Roth's The War Zone. Uh, at one point, this was maybe my favorite movie. I also liked The Sweet Hair after I read the book, uh, actually several times after watching it. Uh, Alexander Stewart, great novel. Uh, by the way, the author of Sophie's Choice, William Styron, also wrote a really great book about depression called uh, uh, Darkness Visible, if anyone wants to check that out. Anyway, uh, The War Zone is uh, a story about a family in, um, uh, in the middle of who knows in England. They live in a very rural place. The father is Ray Winstone. The mom is Tilda Swinton. She's just had a baby at the beginning of the movie. And uh, the brother and sister are played uh, by uh, Freddie Cunliffe and Laura Belmont, who I don't think have ever done anything else. I mean, maybe they have, but like these roles, you know, as teenagers must have really messed them up psychologically, I would think. Uh, this is also Tim Roth's only movie, too. And uh, basically... Only directed uh, movie. Yeah, only directed movie. Of course. Oh, he's been in other movies, <laughs> I believe. Uh, but um, basically what happens, this isn't really a spoiler or anything, but uh, the uh, son in the movie uh, learns that his sister and his father are engaged in an incestual uh, relationship. I, even that is not really wording it in the proper terms because it is total sexual abuse. Uh, way beyond what we would say even incest. Um, it's pretty awful. And uh, not only is it just awful uh, how he learns about it and the way that the movie uh, shows it, but uh, just the psychological effects it has on everybody in that house. Um, and uh, I, what more can you say? I mean, it, it doesn't offer any sort of glimmer of hope. It shows these characters kind of all at, at their worst, at their most vulnerable. Um, and even the confrontation at the end kind of doesn't leave you with any sort of like uplift or resolution. It just kind of feels like the events of this movie are going to be profoundly felt in these characters for the rest of their lives. And it's always going to haunt them. It's a mesmerizing movie. It's a great movie, but uh, it's thoroughly and unremittingly depressing. So it, it had to be my number one. That's a good call. It's a good call. I, I, I've seen it. It. it and it had an impact, but honestly, it's been so long. I don't really remember a whole lot about it. Um, I remember more about the gray zone, which was on my on my short list of, of what was on my honorable mention, too. Yep. All right. Todd, number one. My number one also came from 1999. It is a movie that I feel like left me most depressed and almost like physically shaken after watching it. And that is Boys Don't Cry, which is <laughs> great choice of Brandon Tina, who's a trans boy in Nebraska, who's just continuously mistreated and discriminated against. And it's a true story, which makes it even worse. Hilary Swank and Chloe Sevigny give two of the best performances ever. Peter Sarsgaard and Brendan Sexton are just horrifying in their villain type roles. And uh, it's low budget to the point of almost being like documentary. 
which makes you feel like you're actually there and you're living it with them. And so when like the fatal events happen, you just feel even more dirty. And that, that movie just like messed with me for quite a while. And I, I, I don't really want to watch it again, but I remember how it made me feel. And it was like a, a long time before I like readjusted to like normal life afterwards. And I can't think of something that'd be more depressing than that. And uh, yeah, Boys Don't Cry had to be number one. Good choice. I still need to see that one. Yeah, me too. That's a blind spot. All right, Adam, number one. Number one, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Let's secure the win for Todd. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got one, three, though. I got three. Yeah, no, I, I was I was like pulling out. I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Zach also got three as well. Um, but anyway, oh, uh, The Passion of the Christ uh, is my number one probably most depressing film. It's another one that I... I've seen it twice now. I, I don't want to kind of relive it. It it you're just seeing like brutality on uh, on the Jesus Jesus throughout the whole the film, and it's really realistic as well. And so once you kind of see you know the the story uh, and seeing the the visuals here, it's, it's kind of it's just really uh, just makes you feel sad and. Uh, and realize, yeah, all my, all, everything that I've done wrong is what he's t- paying the price for, in a sense, you know, regardless of what you believe or anything. But, but anyway, yeah, that's a, it's a really depressing film, and yeah, it's one of those ones that just weighed when, I, especially when I came out when I was younger, it weighed really heavily when I was a kid. So, yeah, it's definitely one of those ones that uh, yeah, I haven't rewatched it since as an adult. So there we go. Hard to argue. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, let's uh, let's recap, and then we'll go through some honorable mentions here. So uh, for me, number five, Passion of the Christ. Number four, World's Greatest Dad. Number three, Ensemble. Uh, number two, Kids. And number one, Sophie's Choice, Zach. Number five, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 and Fahrenheit 11-9. Number four, Cold War. Number three, Socrates. Number two, The Sweet Hereafter. And number one, The War Zone. Dodd. Number five, Midsommar. Number four, Kids. Number three, 21 Grams. Number two, The Hours. And number one, Boys Don't Cry. Adam. Number five, Blue Valentine. Four, Precious. Number three, Requiem for a Dream. Two, Boy in the Striped Pajamas slash Schindler's List. And one, The Passion of the Christ. All right. Now for some honorable mentions. Uh, the ones that I was really, uh, I really wanted to get on my list. Fruvale uh, Station was one that I really wanted to get on my list. Um, the messenger yeah that, I, that like I, I was so bummed I couldn't get that on my list because that's just super depressing um and then so I asked my wife uh when I say depressing movie like best depressing movie what do you think of and she said two things she said anything World War two and seeing someone freak out at frozen meat falling out of a freezer because all I can think of is his dad dying. And so Manchester by the sea, I wanted to get on my list, but I just left it off. Uh, so that was, that was really close. Uh, other world war two movies. I thought about putting on the gray zone Schindler's list, saving private Ryan because of the last like 30 seconds. I mean, it's not, it, it has kind of an uplifting theme, but then when you get to the old Private Ryan again, he's like, I didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. I think mean, that that's like, dude, you just ruined the movie in so many, in a lot of ways. Um, and then Atonement was another one that was kind of, it had a depressing ending to it. Uh, some other ones I wanted to mention 12 Years a Slave, A Separation, 
Brokeback Mountain, Captain Phillips, Old Boy, and uh, Permanent Midnight. Okay. Permanent Midnight. I gotta mention it whenever I can. Permanent Midnight. Ben Stiller just there. There's a scene in there where he's he's shooting up on heroin in front of his newborn child. It's just ah no. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of Old Boy. Like, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting choice. I think the remake is depressing because it was a depressing endeavor. Should have it's never one, happened. It's one of those movies that, that movie just makes you feel depressing. dirty by the by the twist. And and also, the depressed. biggest, the worst spoiler is watching the remake when you think it's the original. You might be talking from experience there. All right, yeah, Zach, honorable mentions. Uh, listen, my my whole uh, life could be devoted to depressing movies, so th this list could go on and on. Um, but here are some of the highlights. Uh, could be or has it? It probably has. Uh, come and see. Turtles can fly. Elephant. Um, how about movies about uh, depressing animal movies? How about uh, 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 Oh Hazard Balthazar, the Great Brisson film, Project Nim. Um, that movie about the dolphins that get slaughtered in Japan. I can't remember the name of that. The Cove. The Cove. Yeah, that's pretty depressing. Or the, the Day the, of the Dolphin. The, that, no, that was actually a fun movie. Uh, <laughs> the one, the one that Joaquin Phoenix narrates about why we should all be vegetarians. I've actually never watched that. I'm just putting it I've on the list because I, I never want to watch it. Um, the the Gray Zone, Manchester by the Sea, Nobody Knows, Decalogue Episode 1, Interiors, Polytechnique, The Stoning of Soroya M, Grave of the Fireflies, Goodbye First Love, and then the father. I'm kind of surprised the father never came up, but I thought that was a thoroughly depressing but great experience. I thought it's, about that one, but I don't it's necessarily. More exhilarating think... though. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you can't. It, it's it's kind of like an yeah. It it, it is exhilarating. It's it's a better term, but it, it doesn't change the fact that it's pretty depressing at times to watch. Yeah. Todd, honorable mentions. Well, first the ones that I can rewatch that I know are depressing. Tegugi, which was the reason we made the list uh requiem for a dream the deer hunter leaving las vegas mysterious skin and monster um the other ones i wrote down were breaking the waves and the rest of von trier's movies all of gaspar noe's movies larry clark's other movies harmony corian's other movies to the bone rust and bone and down to the bone are all very depressing <laughs> i don't know why bone is all in those movies. bone movies okay uh quovatis aida uh, Tyrannosaur is, is absolutely a despairing to watch. Uh, Passion of the Christ, Gary Oldman's directorial movie, his only one, Nil by Mouth, with Ray Winstone. Just, uh, I mean, I can't ever watch that again, but it was amazing. The Last House on the Left is absolutely <laughs> disturbing to watch. Yeah. End of Watch is, is really kind of depressing. Yeah. And yeah. one I was shocked that Zach had mentioned was Lilia Forever, because he actually oh, made yeah. watch that, and that's absolutely That's a good one. Terrifying. <laughs> All right, Adam, honorable mentions. I have The Elephant Man, Leaving Las Vegas, Prisoners, uh, Manchester by the Sea, The Machinist, and I also have that documentary, Earthlings, which was 2004. You can only find that on YouTube, actually, that Joaquin Phoenix one. My yep, I, one. I never want to watch that movie. Yeah, I, what? Uh, yeah, heartbreaking. It's there's some vi there's a visual in there that I will never get out of my head. It's it's truly heartbreaking. Yeah. And are you vegetarian? No. Oh, so didn't didn't have the desired impact. Couldn't have been that depressing. Well, I'm, I, I want to say it, but then I don't want to have you have that visual either. So there we go. Well, thank that's 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 courteous. Yeah, I try. All right. Well, Todd won. So what's the score, Todd? Eight hundred to zero. 
it is now i now officially have twice as many as terry i, I have 34 and a half zach has 22 and terry has 17 Damn, I'm, i tried again i know i you got tried. four of your list like how did i how did i get better <laughs> all right moving on to our trivia segment are you ready well let's hope so oh i forgot about this John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And I think we all have something to talk about that we uh, need to report on that Todd assigned us since he won trivia. Uh, let's start with Zach. Okay, I'm going to keep this short because we're going way over. Uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> I, I watched uh, the 1962 Lolita. A really interesting movie. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the book. I, the way I feel about the book is the way I also feel about Annie Hall. It's like a movie or a book I loved in high school, but now it's just uh, it's way too problematic. Um, but uh, And not necessarily just for the content either. The movie is interesting. I don't know why I hadn't seen it, but uh, uh, I think the casting is almost perfect in it. James Mason is great. Shelley Winters is great. Kinda, there's a lot of Shelley Winters in the first 40 minutes of this movie. I could have a, l- a little less Shelley Winters. Sue Lyons as Lolita is, is awesome, and I actually think that um, the criticism of the movie is the same I have as the book. It really doesn't develop her character at all. I wish Kubrick had, had had a little bit more foresight to actually give that character a little bit more uh, interesting things to do or say. Um, Peter Sellers is laughable in this movie. He's way over the top. And, um, you know, it's obvious that this movie, the tagline for this movie was how'd they ever make a movie out of Lolita? Well, obviously they went around the production code for a lot of things and they tamed the book dramatically. And one of the ways they did that was make by making it a comedy. And I don't really think it works particularly great as a comedy. Um, but, uh, it's also really long and, I don't know. Like I said, the Peter Sellers is just distracting in this movie and the multiple personas, which really deviate quite a bit from the book. The character in the book is nice, a very fringe, sort of marginal character. Um, but, you know, it's ambitious to make the movie 1962. And I think, like I said, James Mason and Sue Lyon are really close to who I would see reading the book. So I give it a three stars. I don't know why Todd considers it one of the great uh, Kubrick movies. Um, Kubrick movies never age. So this movie does feel in a lot of ways very resonant. But uh, it's just, I, I don't know, it gets distracted by the comedy, I think. I never really thought of it as a comedy, but... I don't know. There's a, the scene, what the seduction scene turns into a screwball comedy with Humbert uh, uh, leaping up from his his porta bed, and it's it's like a Marx Brothers scene. I mean, there are overtly comic sequences in this movie. It's it's the it's the most mainstream comedy that uh, Kubrick ever did. Of course, all of Kubrick's movies have comedy in them, but this has a- absolutely comic scenes that just don't work. Well, that sucks. Okay, but it was good. I still liked it. I need to see the 97 version. 97 is, yeah, it, ta- it, it takes it a little bit further, but... 97 is probably I, closer I, to the book. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I've read the book too, so yeah, you're right. All right. Adam, what did Todd have you watch? He let me watch his number one film from 2020, correct? Is that is that last year? Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, Blue yeah. Story. Blue yes. Story. Oh. Well also, done, Terry also watched this. Yes. And what I will say off the bat is that I, even though I don't like it as much as you guys who are putting in their top 10 and four star, I'm kind of in the three star range. I do appreciate the relevance of the story here. The having these two good friends and having it, uh, what side of the, this kind of gang violence I, and having this fourth wall breaking, um, 
uh, rap sequences. I thought that was very a unique take and spin on it. Uh, was that the director of the film doing the rapping? That's well, that's what I couldn't tell. Anyway, I, I don't know. Sure. I guess that's I'm not, I'm yeah, not sure yeah. about that, but that's pretty cool that they were able to do that and kind of give you more of the story and also kind of play back sequences and put it more of a different uh, a different kind of relevance to them too. Uh, one thing I had a hard time with, and it's something with the acting. I thought the performances were really good. I just couldn't understand the uh, dialect. They were uh, what they were, how, what some stuff they were saying. And I know a lot of it probably slang too. I had a hard time kind of following a lot of the, the speech patterns there, but I thought overall the story was really a dang, dang fascinating. And uh, seeing these characters kind of go through their life where they're really good friends and what breaks them up and, uh, and, they're battling out, out with each other. Uh, it was really, it was really sad and kind of hard to see this friendship break up that way too. But it's also one of the stories that you should definitely be checking out. If you haven't heard of Blue Story, you should definitely watch it because it's it's relevant. It's a relevant story to watch. So, I applaud you guys for putting it in your top tens. So well, I definitely probably have to rewatch it. But I told yeah. you, watch it with subtitles. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I should. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I missed. I forgot. I forgot about that. I was like, what. Yeah, so probably right now three stars, but if I watch it with subtitles again, I think that's going to probably help it a lot. I'll probably follow it a little bit more too. So good film. All though. right. All right. So for me, so uh, Todd had Zach watch his number 82 movie of all time. I had to watch his number 80 movie of all time from 1993, A Bronx Tale, the directorial debut of Robert De Niro. There's only directed two movies, A Bronx Tale, and the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd was great. And a Bronx Tale is great as well. The first thing I'll say is that uh, the the poster to a Bronx Tale is super misleading because it feels like it's like a battle between De Niro and Palminteri, Chaz Palminteri, which it totally isn't. I mean, it kind of is, but it really isn't in, in a lot of ways, too. Uh, the movie starts out and immediately you're like, oh, okay, this is like a, a, a remake of Goodfellas just three years later, as you see the kid kind of getting indoctrinated into the mob and what's going on. And, and then that's not what it is at all as you end up having. So Robert De Niro plays a father of this kid named um, uh, Caligero, Caligero, Caligero. Yeah. And, um, and then Sonny is Chaz Palminteri, who's the head of the mob in the neighborhood. And, uh, and C is what he ends up becoming known as. The kid gets uh, gets in Sonny's good graces, and he has to kind of ride this balance of uh, of being involved in Sonny's world, yet uh, yet following his dad, who is a bus driver, who is trying to make an honest living and live an honest life, and teach his kid that the honest life is the way to go and don't get involved in all the other stuff. And you'll be respected for not being involved in all of that. And uh, it, it's really a fascinating watch. I'm giving it three and a half stars for now. Uh, I just watched it this morning and I'm still kind of processing, but it might go up uh, as the more I think about it and the more I, uh, I kind of just let it, let it sit with me, but it's a, it's a pretty amazing movie. And uh, and the performance is there. I don't know where they found Lilo Brancato, and I don't know what he's done since. But my word, I mean, if you want to take the 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 girl cast as the mom, and then Robert De Niro, and put them together into this one kid, 
I mean, you can't really find a better fit for that. I mean, it, this is like perfect, perfect. Like the, some of the best casting I've ever seen. Um, and, uh, and yeah, he's he's amazing. Oh, it was, it was his first movie and he's done some stuff since, but not a whole lot. Anyways, three and a half stars, a Bronx Tale. It is a really, really good movie. And it I might it might cra- end up cracking my top 10 to 93 the more I think about it. But yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good one. Yeah, I watched that movie again this week too, and I mean, I I always thought that this was Terry's like, gangster movie because it's a movie about it's a coming of age movie. It's a movie about yes. like a boy and his two fathers, yes. father figures, pretty much. And it takes a lot of Goodfellas stuff. He obviously learned a lot from Scorsese, but yeah. it's also Chaz Palminteri's like life story. Like he had this as a a one man play before before it became a movie and de niro saw the play he's like dude we need to make this a movie and he's like we'll star in it together and yeah and you could you could see parts of that about how 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 this this movie is about the kid but it's about how much he idolized sunny and how much he wanted to play sunny because like that lifestyle is so alluring and but it's like the other lifestyle is what he actually needs to go by i i yeah i mean i love a bronx tale I'm, i'm glad you liked it yeah it's pretty brilliant it really is Okay, it is trivia time. Todd, you're hosting, and I think all three of us are battling it out here. Yeah. So, uh, so let's do this. Okay. Um, it's Ben Affleck's birthday, so we're gonna do some filmography trivia. Oh gosh. He has 52 movies that he is uh credited with on imdb whether it says uncredited or not i'm going with the movies that are actually on his list uh yeah 52 i would have thought it'd be a little more than that but that's actually a decent number uh i guess we'll uh we'll start with adam because he's the newcomer we'll go alphabetically how about that adam terry zach armageddon armageddon is a movie yes goodwill hunting goodwill hunting Correct. Argo. Argo is correct. Uh, Batman versus Superman. That is correct. Hey, hey, hey how, how, how about Suicide Squad? There Suicide Squad is a, a credited movie for Ben Affleck, yes. Dazed and Confused. That's correct, too. Uh, Justice League. Another one now. Can I say Zack Snyder's Justice League, or is that no, something that, different? I that that's that different. Thing. <laughs> uh, I'll go Pearl Harbor, that's correct. Uh, changing lanes, that's good. The Daredevil, it's just Daredevil, but yes, that's correct. That's what I said, Daredevil. I think you said the. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Hollywoodland. That's another one. Bounce. Now we're getting into it. Uh, chasing Amy. There's a good one. Paycheck. It's a Terry movie. <laughs> that is a Terry movie. <laughs> I love that movie. It's horrible. It's an awesomely bad movie. Shakespeare in Love. Ooh, Here we go. 
We are now almost a third of the way through. We have five each of the 52. Um, dogma. Nice. Sum of all fears. There we go. Jersey girl. This is going swimmingly. <laughs> uh, Jay and Silent Bob strike back. Yeah, he is in that. 2020s, the way back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. Uh, Geely. Uh, like it. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Yeah, he's in Gosh. the very last scene. Yeah, I, yeah, I know, I know, I got that one. <laughs> oh crap! Um, there's the one movie that flopped that he directed that I can't remember the name. It's like um, five, four, <laughs> three. Like, shine the no. light that's wrong no that is incorrect <laughs> and you dude you really screwed that up too okay i know <laughs> exactly. i know i did but i know i know what i'm talking I, I see the movie poster in my head no but you screwed it up in more ways than one <laughs> uh extract extract that's is a good correct. one i forgot about that oh, yeah. one how about gone girl gone girl i was gonna say terry's top 100 <laughs> and that wasn't even the one I just thought of, too. Oh, I know. The Company Damn Men. It. The Company Men is another one. We have nine apiece between Adam and Zach. Terry has a seven. The Town. The Town. There's the movie, the good movie that he directed, Terry. <laughs> Reindeer Games. Mm. Reindeer Games. She's just not that into you. <laughs> it is. Is he's just not that into you? That is, yeah. That Wait, is, that is he said she though. Yeah, it's an incorrect answer. <laughs> oh. That's right. Damn it! I had two more, man. I knew this bad movie that he directed too. I have the Sandra Bullock movie too. Yeah, the Sandra Bullock movie is what I can't remember. I'm I'm remembering That's the one I have. The, the, That's the, the first one I wrote down. I can't remember the title of it. Hmm. Oh my gosh. I'm so mad at myself right now. I had three more. Five, four, guys, three. Just give it to Adam. He he had the movie. I can't remember. What was it called? Forces of Nature. Forces of Nature. How about Classic. Boiler Room? Yeah, That's Boiler another Room one. Yeah. How about Day of Night? Is that the one he directed? Live by one? Night. Live by Live Night. By okay, night. so I would have got that wrong. Good thing I saved <laughs> oh, that. To the Wonder. To the wonder, yeah. The last oh, thing yeah. he wanted was the terrible movie with by D. Reeves that he made, Triple Frontier. Oh uh, yeah, The oh, Accountant, which a... is actually getting a sequel. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Runner, Runner, State of Play, uh, Smoke and Aces, Clerks Two. Oh 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 oh! What, what, uh, what was the one? Um, State of Play. This, did you say State of Play? Yeah, I just said State yeah. of Play. Okay, I just remembered that movie. There was a bunch of bad 90s movies. Apparently, he was an extra in uh, Field of Dreams. Yeah, he nice. was a uh, Boston. So was Matt Damon. 
And, and oh yeah, he was like in Fenway Park or something. Yeah. Adam still he he neglected to say mall rats for some reason. Yeah, that, I was I was I couldn't remember. Okay, so the other category I have. Oh my god, we have another category. I don't even know if I can. You got you guys tied. You guys you guys are. Tied, I said Adam, right? Adam can win. He got. I I respect the fact that Adam oh, got you, it. You don't want to do the other category. I need another category. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we like uh, I was texting with Zach and Terry about this thing about you know like um, people who have been in the most movies directed by people whose picture movies have won Best Picture. So oh I started yeah. Thinking about the screenwriters' movies that have won Best Picture. Oh, I'm I'm done. We should what? end. <laughs> we should we so, should so end. It, so for example, like uh, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, uh, their screenplay won Best Picture. So that would be one. And I'm thinking of the ones from 1990 to current. And I'm still confused. So we have to come up with the screenwriters of Best Picture winners. Yes, the screenwriters oh. of Best Picture winners. There are 42 screenwriters from 1990 to current. Okay. 42? Wait, 42? Well, so it we sounds like Todd did all the work on this, so we, we should. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Because, well, because there are multiple sucks. screenwriters of some movies. And so adapted or original? Yeah, adapted or original. But, but it has to be it has to be best picture winning. Yeah, the best picture winner. Oh. And if they wrote more than one, oh. then you get two points. Oh. Okay, that's that does change it a little bit. Okay, I think I see. Okay. But you, it can't be like the writer of the book. It has to be somebody who's credited as writing the story or the screenplay of the movie. Okay. Uh, we'll go and. Uh, I mean, I guess we could start with Adam if he has anything. He probably has something. <laughs> I don't know. That that look We're does gonna... not spell success. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, okay, we'll go backwards and we'll go Zach, then Terry, then Adam. Okay, uh, Mark Bull. Mark Bull did write The Hurt Locker. I'll go with uh, Paul Haggis. Paul Haggis <laughs> is a two-pointer for Terry. He wrote Million Dollar oh. Baby and Crash. Yeah! Well, if you guys want to find me on Twitter, I'm Adam, Adam <laughs> Sideways. Make sure you follow the YouTube channel. Just, just say sure. a director, Adam. Just say a director, and then it'll probably be right like half the time. Mm. Five. I, I hate, I don't Four. know, writers. Damn it, man. Three. I was so mad. I'm so mad. Two. One. Yeah. Nothing? Nope. Okay. Zach. Uh, Alan Ball. Alan Ball is correct. What did Alan Ball write? American, American Beauty. Beauty. Right, 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 right. Um, Tom McCarthy. Tom McCarthy is one yeah. of the screenwriters of Spotlight. Spotlight. Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard wrote Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love, yes, that's correct. Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao was the screenwriter of Nomadland. Uh, Eric Roth. Eric Roth. Forrest Gump. Now fourteen um, to eleven. Can I give a last name, or do I need to give a full name? <laughs> I would prefer the full name. Unless, if it's especially if it's like a an obscure last name, then I would give it to you. It's not. Uh, 
no, no. I, I, I know the guy. I just don't remember his first name. Um, because it isn't it. Um, Seidler who wrote the King's Speech. <laughs> I'll give it to you, yeah. David Seidler. David, I, I was gonna say David Seidler, but I, I didn't want to be wrong. You got that. That's wow, that's I would impressive. Never remembered. <laughs> uh, uh, what about the Cone Brothers? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll give it to you as I mean, that's one. They want these. They accepted the Oscar, so yeah. yeah. I don't wrote that um, down separately. Is what I mean, but okay. Um, Monahan. <laughs> Crazy Bill Monahan. William yeah, William Monahan. Pardon. Peter Jackson and Fran Wells. Well, you only need to do one of them, but yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, Fran Walsh was one of the other three. Okay. <laughs> well, you, only, you could have given the other one as, a, as another answer. I'm going to go Bong Jun Ho. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Barry Jenkins? No, wait, stop. No, 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 not Barry Jenkins. Sorry, I'm going to go Anthony Manhella instead. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's correct. Because uh, I don't think Barry Jenkins did it, did he? I can't remember. Uh, Chris Terrio. That is correct. Jeez. Terry. Uh, Peter Farrelly. That is correct. Um, Guillermo del Toro. That is correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah, he was he, he was the co-writer. Of... I forgot that that one screenplay. Um, it didn't win screen. It, it, the the writer of the best picture winner. The writer of the best picture winner. Oh, That's what I've, we're doing. I've been doing this category wrong the whole time. Yeah, you've been getting a a, a well, writer yeah, I, a writer credited with a best picture winner. Oh, oh, okay. Well, I guess that changes things a little bit. I don't know, well, maybe so, not that not much. You, you haven't said. I mean, you haven't just said like Spike Jones or something. Like you, like you've been doing it right. Right. Well, James Cameron. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Michelle Hasnavicius. That is correct as well. Wow. <laughs> You guys are killing it. Uh, okay. The, the the writer of Unforgiven is three three words in his name. And I think it's the first one's David, but I'm not sure. The writer of Dances Wolves begins with a Jim. I think his first name is Jim, but I can't really remember. I am just I I can't I can't remember. I'll go Barry Jenkins, but I think that's wrong. That's correct. Oh, sweet. Okay. The game goes on, of Dang course. Two, two thirty-five in. Okay, it's never gonna end. <laughs> um, Danny Boyle. That's not correct. Gosh, it's written by Simon Boyle. Simon Bofoy. I was gonna say that. It doesn't oh, wait. matter. You won. Yeah, you won. Okay. You were up by three on me, anyways. So. I was okay. So. Yeah, Juno Bong was a co-writer. So was Peter Farrelly with Nick Vallelonga and. Oh Brian gosh, we could have said Ace Nick Vallelonga. Yeah. T Terrell Alvin McCraney was the other writer on Moonlight. 
Josh Singer was the other writer on Spotlight. You guys forgot about Birdman in your R2 and his buddies. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Who wrote? Uh, okay. Bill Condon wrote Chicago. Oh, gosh. Mm. Who wrote 12 David, Years a Slave? Was Steve, uh, McQueen, Steve McQueen wasn't on that. John Ridley. That's Rid right. That was his name. Writer of Unforgiven was David Webb Peoples. David and the Webb writer Peoples, of right. Dances with Michael Jim. Blake. Oh, Michael Blake. Good acceptance speech by Michael Blake. Check it out on YouTube. Hey, Goldman I wrote A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, I didn't know who wrote A Beautiful Mind. But I'm going to give myself... Who wrote Gladiator? Was Ridley Scott credited on no, that? No, it was John Logan, William Nicholson, and David Franzoni. Okay. You guys also forgot about... Uh, Steven Zalian wrote Schindler's List. Schindler's List yeah. Oh, that was the name. I couldn't remember the name. Peter Jackson. Could we have said Peter Jackson for Return of the King? I think Zach. Did. I did. Oh, he did? Okay. And Fran Walsh. Okay. I'm going to give myself he? a W on this one just beforehand. <laughs> the, that episode ended when I All right. the Netflix part. Zach won. <laughs> Time for quote of the day. Zach, go first. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, my quote comes from Shakespeare, who said, it's a tale full of sound and fury signifying nothing, which also describes this podcast. Perfect. Perfect. I'll go next. My quote is from a Bronx tale. Uh, it, it's the closing of the movie, which was just a perfect way to, to sum it up. It says, Sonny and my father... Always said that when I got older, I would understand. Well, I finally did. I learned something from these two men. I learned to give love and get love unconditionally. You just have to accept people for what they are. And I learned the greatest gift of all. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And the choices that you make will shape your life forever. But you can ask anybody from my neighborhood, and they'll just tell you that it's just another Bronx tale. Awesome way to end the movie. Awesome way. Great. All right, Adam, what do you got? Uh, so what a flop, huh? Yeah, that was great. That was great showing. <laughs> um, anyway, mine is from Star Wars because we've all had it on our list. Mine as well. It kind of came to me. Uh, this is Han talking to the intercom. Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Uh, had a slight weapons malfunction, but uh, everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine here. We're all fine here uh, now. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, yeah. Yeah, we're good. I thought you were oh, going to say, no now. reward is worth this. I thought you were going <laughs> to talk about Toshi Station. I was going to go to Toshi Station pick up some power converters. Biggest whiny baby in all the galaxy. All right, Thanks. Todd, wrap us up. Uh, mine comes from Suicide Squad. It's uh, Rick Flagg who says, hey, hey, he's not a werewolf. He's a weasel. He's harmless. I mean, he's not harmless. He's killed 27 children, but, y you know... <laughs> That describes that movie, not this podcast, but I mean, it was a really good plan. <laughs> <laughs> all right, with that, we're gonna bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure you check us out all over the internet. Almostsideways.com has all the information you need, and uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.